Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live and welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. I want to thank you all for being here for tonight's important debate. Now, if this is your first time watching a debate on this channel, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. We have now hosted over 180 debates on all sorts of fun and important topics. On Standing for Truth, as you know, we strongly believe in critical thinking. And one way we promote critical thinking is by hosting some really awesome debates. This way we can come together and hear both sides of the debate on all kinds of interesting topics. And that is exactly why we are here tonight to debate the important question and topic, do all Christians persevere to the end? Essentially, this is a debate on soteriology, lordship versus free grace. Josh Gibbs, Turretin fan, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for giving us your time for this important debate. Thanks for having us, Donnie. It's good to be back. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. You both have been here before and you've always been gracious, respectful and sophisticated in your debate. So I appreciate that. And so as we always do here before we get into the debate itself, we like to kind of break the ice and get to know the uh, debaters for the evening. And so why don't we start off with some introductions? Who are you? A little bit about yourself, a little bit about your channel or your ministry. Uh, Josh, why don't we start with you? Uh, how you been? What's going on? A little bit about yourself. Oh, I've been I've been pretty good this weekend. It could have been a little bit better. Uh, there's a lot of things kind of going on in life right now. We're getting ready to move in a couple of weeks. We went so we went on a camping trip, and I you know we we got back a couple hours ago, and I'm like, gosh, you know, uh, this has probably been the worst day and a half of my life. It was <laughs> a camping trip. I'm like. The weather was supposed to be nice. It just downpoured on us. The heat came out. It got super humid, hot, and sticky. Uh, the bugs came out and ate us alive. But any okay, so I, you guys don't care about that stuff. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've got a podcast. I haven't, I haven't done anything on my podcast for a while. Um, but what, what kind of got me started in this line of uh, study on soteriology and specifically Calvinism and Reformed theology versus uh, the free grace position, which is what I hold. It, it started out a few years ago in a debate that I had with a, a Calvinist and me thinking that I knew a lot more about Calvinism than I did. Uh, I pretty much got it handed to me and lost really bad. And then there were some clips that were edited and made me look worse than I really was, which was kind of unnecessary because I looked bad enough. But uh, but here we are today. I, I think that I've I've uh, studied both sides to the point that I'm confident to be able to actually stand stand here with you guys today and and have an intelligent conversation about it. So, anyways, I guess that's what's relevant. 
<laughs> Amen. I appreciate the introduction. And of course, I care about your camping experience. To me, Josh, I was only a happy camper when I was leaving the campground. So I never really understood the whole uh, happy camper uh, comment. So I appreciate that. I appreciate your uh, introduction. And also to the audience, we do have uh, Josh's links in the description box, as well as Turretin fans. So if you like what you're seeing from the debaters tonight, and you want to see more from them, uh, check out their channels, their websites, so on and so forth. Okay, Turretin fan, uh, good to have you back as well. How you been and a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been well debating a wide variety of topics. Uh, Calvinism is one of the, the topics that does uh, bubble up. Obviously, I think I my I want to say my first moderate or first public debate uh, as Turretin fan was uh, on the subject of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, if I remember right, a long time ago with Lou Rugg, who I think might still be out there on Pal Talk, uh, still doing debates. Uh, but in any event, uh, uh, most of my debates have been with Roman Catholics, and I I think on a lot of those debates. Uh, Mr. Gibson and myself would probably have very similar uh, points of view, uh, but there's certainly lots of areas where we disagree with each other, and I look forward to having this uh, debate today on uh, on our topic. So thanks for facilitating this. I really appreciate it. My privilege, my privilege having you guys on. And again, uh, the relevant links are linked in the description box. So for the, uh, for the audience sake, let's go over the uh, format a little bit going to be a, a formal debate, 15-minute uh, opening statements, starting with Turretin Fan. Then we're going to have uninterrupted rebuttals, seven minutes each. Then we're going to have everybody's favorite part of a debate, the cross-examination, uh, two rounds each, 15 minutes each for a total of one hour. So we're going to have plenty of time to ask each other questions pertaining to points, arguments brought up in the opening statement and rebuttals. Then we're going to have, of course, closing statements, five minutes each. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have an audience Q&A, about 30 minutes. So please make sure you're tagging me with your questions at Standing for Truth, and that way I won't miss them. Okay, let's get right into the debate and the fun. Turretin fan, we're going to hand it over to you. And uh, gentlemen, are you timing yourselves, or do you prefer if I give you like a one-minute warning? Um, what's most convenient for you guys? Uh I'm prepared to time myself, but you know, especially in the cross-examination, it might be helpful to have that warning because I'll intend to get distracted during that time. Absolutely, cross-exam for sure, and and for the openings, even though you're you're timing yourselves, I know that time flies by, so I'll give you guys a one-minute warning. But that being said, Turretin fan, whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Thanks so much. Again, I'm very happy to be debating this topic today with Mr. Gibbs. What's the position I'm going to be defending? Well, that position is summarized well in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, which has three points. The three points are these. Point one, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Point two. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. 
And the third point, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. None of this should, of course, downplay the importance of following God's law. Nevertheless, the point of all of this is that those who God has called to himself, who he has effectually called, who he has sanctified by his spirit, will not fall away. Not entirely. They may backslide, but they will not fall away. The proof of this doctrine comes from scripture. I'm going to be using the King James Version, uh, and I I do agree that the Greek is uh, superior to the English translation, but I'm going to be using the English translation for this debate since we're debating in English. Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith, and that is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We also shall be saved. Acts 15.11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Faith means trust in God. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Faith is not merely believing that God exists. James 2.19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou dost well, the devils also believe and tremble. Justification is not the only aspect of salvation. Salvation also includes adoption. Galatians 4.5 says, To redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And Ephesians 1.5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Adoption comes by the Spirit. Hebrews 9, 8, 9-17 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may all be also glorified together. So there's a connection between faith, union with Christ, adoption as God's children, and ultimately the glory that we shall have together. Moreover, the Spirit aids us. Roman, Romans 8, 26 to 39 says, 
Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall then we say to these things? For if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is faith? Hebrews 11, 1 through 2 defines it this way. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Now notice the connection between faith and a good report. The good report is not the cause of the faith. It's the other way around. Moreover, remember, our faith does not depend on us. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. As Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Wherefore, seeing we are seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus will finish what he started. Philemon 1, 3 through 8 tells us, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. By contrast, false faith is a dead faith. It's not the real thing. James 2, 14 through 26 tells us, What does it profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith? And have not works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked 
and destitute of food. And one of you said to him, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show you the... I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou dost well, the devils also believe and tremble, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his uh, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith, or sorry, so faith without works is dead also. I realize this passage has been misunderstood by some, especially by those who are seeking to deny justification by faith alone. But properly understood, it's about what is true faith. How reasonable, though, is it to link faith with works? And the answer is, it's reasonable because of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 to 25 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which... I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Moreover, Scripture has warnings to false believers. Jude 5 through 13 says, I will therefore put you into remembrance. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the way error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. 
Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. If you have believed, bring forth the appropriate fruit. Romans 6, 15 through 23 says, what then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being therefore made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things which you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. And the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord fruit is not how we're justified before god nor is One it the minute. cause of our salvation but it is evidence matthew 7 15 through 20 says beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening wolves you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Turreted fan, I appreciate the 15-minute opening statement and uh, right on the dot. Appreciate it. Okay, we're going to hand it over to Josh Gibbs now for uh, his opening statement. Josh, if you need to uh, share screen, and there we go. Perfect. Okay. Looks good. Well, I guess I better get to my slides. Okay. All right, that'll work. Let me get my clock started here and then I'll be ready to go. Okay, perfect. Uh, so thank you again, Donnie, for the invitation to do this debate. Thank you, Francis, for uh, being willing to take the Calvinist reform position. Uh, the question is, must one endure, uh, essentially? And when, when we're talking about the endurance of the Christian, we're looking at perspectives on salvation. In, in this debate, we've got a contrast before be, between the Reformed and the free grace. Uh, specifically, typically, you'll see four main categories uh, that'll bring distinctions, uh, kind of describing what the relationship is between faith and works. In the Roman Catholic view, I think you can see uh, in, in the last debate between Robertson Jennison and Bob Wilkin, was a great debate to kind of illustrate that the Roman Catholic view shows that works help get one justified, that is saved. The Arminian tradition would show that works keep one justified or saved. The Reformed tradition would would 
which show that works prove that one is justified or saved. And if one does not persevere in faith and good works, one never uh, truly was saved. Uh, then you've got the free grace position, which is my position. And it, it, we say that it only helps get the justified. That is those who are saved. It only helps works only help get them sanctified. And I think while the Calvinists correctly affirm that works are not necessary for initial salvation, you'll see a lot of similarities between the Arminian, the Calvinist, and uh, the Roman Catholic. They all believe in initial grace. Um, they, they call it by different names. It's infused grace with the, the Roman Catholic. Um, and in this case, the, the Calvinist is, is affirming salvation is not uh, anything by uh, the work of the individual, the believer. It's something that God does. We've got some strong distinctions in how we think that actually happens, uh, which is worth a debate in itself. But essentially what we're saying is initial salvation is regeneration and justification before God. However, the issue with the perseverance concept is that they undermine the true, uh, the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, when they also insist that good works must accompany saving faith so that without such works, no one will obtain glorification, that is, final salvation or final justification. So the question is, doesn't this still undermine the salvation by grace alone message? If works cannot be a condition for initial salvation, lest they would nullify the grace uh, that justifies a person, then wouldn't making works a condition for final salvation also nullify grace and the biblical truth that salvation is solely by God's grace from start to finish? That is, is backloading the gospel any different than frontloading the gospel? The Calvinist says the Roman Catholic front loads the gospel with, with works, and so it's a false gospel. We're saying backloading it is just, just as bad. You just don't see it that way. So throughout this debate, I think that I'll, I'll demonstrate how it's true and intuitively and exegetically true that Christians can and do fail and fall all the time. And not all Christians... Uh, die in a state of grace, if that's how you want to word it. We'll, we'll see how we want to word that as we go. But historically, the Calvinist position has maintained that the use of certain means by believers enables them. You'll hear that, that God uses means to justify a person. It'll enable them to persevere in their faith and to finally be saved. So what are these God-ordained means that believers are instructed to appropriate in order to obtain final salvation. Well, according to Calvinism, these means of grace include heeding the word of God, uh, heeding the word of God. That would include the threatenings of the law, uh, the practice of devout prayer, renewing our covenant oath to keep God's commandments, and partaking of the sacraments. So let's start by kind of looking at this a uh, little briefer by what they've written firsthand. According to the Shorter Westminster Catechism, it's explicit in question 85. What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Well, the answer is to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. 
Question 88, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his holy ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, sacraments and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Well, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation not from any virtue in them or in them that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. So it's kind of an ongoing grace thing for the elect only, which is very similar to uh, meritorious grace in, in the Catholic perspective. Now, you see in the canons of, of the Synod of Dort, they express the same conditions for perseverance and salvation. In Article 14 on the perseverance of the saints, saints states, and as it hath pleased God by the preaching of the gospel to begin this work of grace in us, so he preserves, continues, and perfects it in it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation thereon, and by the exhortations, threatenings, and promises thereof, and by the use of the sacraments. According to the confessional reformed covenant theology, God supplies the faith for the elect to believe and the means of grace that believers use for their salvation, so that God is, in a very distorted way, credited with doing all the work necessary for salvation. So you get into the determinism side of this. A lot of this information has come by, from the book Freely by His Grace by Thomas Stegall. I'd recommend that for anybody who really wants to look at these things in detail. For me personally, I, I see the whole debate of the relationship between works and faith coming down to an understanding of uh, James chapter 2, which I'll spend some time on here. Uh, in, in James 2, it shows the relationship of works to justification. And the big picture I think we can see is this epistle, it consistently is addressing believers. It's addressing believers multiple times. I've got references here who possess faith. They're in Christ already. They're called brethren. And, and when we see specific words in the book of James, just like any book in, in the Bible, they, they only have meaning within their context. So specifically, the word salvation or saved or gospel. These are, these are big words that have big meaning within big context. Specifically, salvation itself has multiple different meanings depending on the context. This word can be used to physical death. It's not always used in, in the sense of being saved from hell to heaven. It, it's used in the sense of trouble or unfortunate circumstances, which it is addressed in these these uh, references I've given in Philippians and First First Timothy. It's used to physical illnesses. It's being saved from enemies, being saved from losing the fullness of God's life here and in eternity. It's being used in the sense of being saved from eternal condemnation. So, specifically, you get to the big section in chapter in verses fourteen through twenty six. And you see a couple of things that are called A and B truths. I've got the reference of who came up with this down at the bottom here when I get there, and I'll hopefully give them credit. But what we see in between an A and a B truth as an example is in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we know that we're saved by grace through faith without any kinds of works. So we're talking about initial justification. That's the A truth. However, in other passages, we would contradict this clear teaching if we define sal salvation uh, the same way as in James 2.14. So this would be one example. Well, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and he has not works? Can that faith save him? 
Well, what James is is saying, what it, we're saved from is kind of a big deal. So if you think that he's saying that you're saved from hell to heaven, which is typically the traditional assumption from the Reformed or Calvinist position, uh, you've got some problems, and and we'll be able to explain that and, and hopefully get into it in our, in our cross-examination. But that's big. That's big. So that salvation, it's not only from eternal condemnation, it includes salvation from the power of sin in us. That'd be justification and God's wrath that is the consequence of sin, even in the believer. Now, Romans 5 says a lot about that and being justified by his blood. We've been saved from the wrath through him. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And you can find that uh, from Charlie Bing in his book, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship. Well, I, you've got to always work harder in the Calvinist uh, um, concept of justification, because if you're not justified, then you're not going to persevere. And if you're not persevering, then you're probably not justified. So there's kind of a, a conundrum that in your mind is always drawing you back to uh, how how hard are you working? The parallel... <laughs> The parallelism between James 1, 21 and 27 and 2, 14 through 26, it helps us see how these passages explain one another. In chapter 1, he tells us we will be saved by being doers and not just hearers of the word. And in 14 through 26, we can see that his meaning is the same. They'll be saved in the sense of finding deliverance from the spiritually impoverishing consequences of sin if they energize their faith by works of obedience. and. Uh, the expression save your souls, it doesn't refer to the initial experience of salvation. So as in all the exhortations that we should be evangelists who save souls, the expression usually refers to the ongoing and continuous through the imperfective aspect of uh, dynamenon, which would be the work of restoring and rescuing the inner life of believers. This It's obvious when one recognizes that James is addressing brothers. Uh, who have already been birthed through a supernatural word of God. Uh, you can find this in Fred Che's uh, book and others through a defense of the free grace theology. But when we talk about the faith that's dead, that's huge in deciding whether or not there's a true faith and a false faith. The false faith doesn't per persevere. The true faith does, and it's all by God's grace. But one example of a misunderstood figure of speech would be the word dead or death. And it's in phrases like dead and trespasses and sins. You can see a, a variety of different ways that death is used, such as Revelation 2014. You see the second death. So a lot of the times you see somebody being saved uh, and, and death being, and being used in the Bible. A lot of times, most, most of the time, actually, people are going to think that it's from heaven uh, or hell. So in 623, you see the wages of death. He's writing to Christians. So it'd be warning that, would he be warning them about eternal death? That would be the question. Well, I don't think it would make sense unless Christians could lose their salvation and go to hell. Uh, he's addressing Christians. He's warning them about the wages of sin. But another urge to assume that death means something that never existed at all, or it has the qualities of non-existence. Specifically in, in James 2.24, I think it's commonly misunderstood when it says faith without works is dead, that it's assumed this refers to a faith that never existed, which which uh, is something we're going to talk about tonight. But I think it'd be an odd way of stating non-existence. In fact, it would actually state that there is faith, but 
goes on to describe one that is dead. Something that is dead is not what it once was, not something that never existed. I'm trying to see how much time I have left here. It looks like uh, two, two minutes. So in James' usage, when he talks about death um, or being dead as in relation to faith, he's talking about it being lifeless or youth, useless. Uh, in reference to benefiting the individual who possesses faith and has no works um, at the judgment seat of Christ, which is a, a distinction that the Reformed really, I think, um, need to focus on between the, the great white throne judgment. Uh, but specifically what I'm, what I'm trying to say is uh, the, the faith that's dead and useless is the faith that's without works. It's not it's not a non-existent faith or a faith that doesn't actually uh, justify a person. So we'll get, we'll get into this. But you can find a lot of this information in Charlie Bing's book, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship as well. Now, this is kind of the cliche. Faith alone saves, but only if it's not alone. So faith alone saves, but it's not really faith alone. I think this is kind of, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a an oxymoron that the Reformed are, are known for holding the faith alone position. Uh, but I, I think really it's the free grace position that holds the faith alone position. And the Reformed attach works to it so that faith is never really alone uh, to the point that you, you don't even see distinctions between sanctification and justification, uh, especially when it comes to degrees of it or or the, uh, a, a linear timeline of, of perseverance and sanctification. So while those are professing Christ, Christians must persevere in order to prove that they're genuinely saved, they would admit that perseverance is a work that earns salvation. Of course, it's a flawed reasoning, because if perseverance is necessary to prove salvation, then perseverance is necessary for salvation. So I, I think that um, that's a good place to, to wrap it up, because... We're kind of come to the point to understand what perseverance is and whether it's necessary for salvation, which is the heart of the debate. So thank you, guys. Josh, I appreciate the opening statement. Uh, gentlemen, that concludes the 15-minute opening statements, clear, concise. Good job to the both of you. We are now moving into the uninterrupted rebuttals. And before I hand it over to Turretin Fan, I do want to remind the audience, uh, make sure if you do have a question, make sure you're tagging me. And uh, you guys are doing a fantastic job so far. We got a ton of awesome audience questions, so I appreciate it. Okay, Turretin Fan, we're going to hand it over to you and uh, on your first word. And when you're good to go, you got seven minutes. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to respond to what Mr. Gibbs has stated. And there are certain aspects of his presentation that I would object to. For example, the basis of our justification is only the righteousness of Christ. So the idea that somehow the Reformed doctrine of sanctification is analogous to the Roman Catholic doctrine of uh, Justification and re-justification is not accurate. There's a, there's a fundamental difference. The diligent use of the outward means, meaning the sacraments, the prayer, the word of God, are they're not, not the ground of our justification before God. And that's something that Reformed theology, as expressed in the Westminster Standards, is quite clear about. 
And in fact, uh, saving faith is described in uh, as you know, by, and this is also from the Westminster Confession, by this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and act, acts differently upon that which each passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling of the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So we're, we trust in Christ, not only for our justification, but also for sanctification and, and everything else goes with it. We're not resting this upon our own personal merits, nor do we say that you could lose justification like the Roman Catholics say. So we have a very fundamentally different uh, soteriology from Roman Catholicism. That said, it does seem as though a, a part of the debate will hinge on the interpretation understanding of James chapter two. And it seems as though a big part of that will ha hang on this question of what does it profit my brothers, though a man says he has faith and doesn't have works, can faith save him? And there seemed to be a suggestion that, that James has in mind some other kind of salvation by faith than salvation from hell. And, you know, if indeed that's what the scriptures taught, then wonderful. That would be, you know, that would be glorious to hear that, that it has nothing to do with that. But the problem, the challenge with that is that James explains himself in terms of friendship with God. If you remember, it says, James 2, 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So the idea that James is talking about some other thing than justification by faith alone through the imputation of righteousness, or that it has to do with something other than being the friend of God, is, is hard to... It's hard to fathom. It doesn't seem to be exegetically warranted. In fact, James 4 comes back to this same topic, and it says, don't you know that friendship of the world is an enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So it is, it's hard to understand how this, how this would be undermined. And I think that the argument that was made is that James is addressed to brothers. There's a, yeah, that is, you know, an interesting problem, because if they are brothers, then aren't they also believers? And doesn't, isn't that implied in the na nature of being a brother? If you don't believe, how can you be a brother? But of course, there's an answer to that. And the answer to that is, that not all the brothers are true brothers. Not all of them are actually what they appear to be. That's why in my opening, if you recall, I, I addressed these issues of false faith, false believers. Jude 5, 1 through 13, uh, excuse me, Jude 5 through 13 describes people who are crept, uh, says that there's these, uh, filthy dreamers who are following the pattern of Cain, 
of Balaam and of Korah. And if you remember, while you know, Balaam is sort of on the outside, he's a prophet, but is he a true prophet? Well, God calls him, but he's also uh, a, he also teaches evil. He's not a believer. Uh, Cain, the first murderer, his sacrifice wasn't accepted. And Korah is the one who offered the false, uh, uh, the, the strange fire to God. These are somebody inside the community, but they are not actually believers. In fact, they're going to be punished with hell. That's what this reserved, uh, the blackness of darkness forever in Jude 13 is about. And the same thing, Jesus talks about uh, the possibility of these false prophets, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, which we discussed. And I think we should come back to that because it's important. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. And that that's a much better and more logical way of understanding what James is talking about here. Why is that? Because... In this passage, James talks about works that demonstrate faith. One minute. When Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar, James 2.21, that demonstrated Abraham's faith. And likewise, when Rahab the harlot received the messengers and sent them out another way, that demonstrated her faith as well. So... It seems as though what James is talking about is not talking about some salvation from something other than hell. Rather, he seems to be talking about the same thing that Jude is talking about, that Jesus is talking about, namely false brothers, brothers without true faith. In this case, they have the, only the faith of words. Perfect timing. Appreciate it. Uh, Turretin fan, that concludes uh, the first seven-minute rebuttal. Josh, we're going to hand it over to you. Uh, whenever you're ready, you also have uh, seven minutes. The floor is yours. Perfect. Okay, thank you. And I, th I think I'm muted. Am I muted? Okay, no, you're good. good. You're good. Okay, perfect. Uh, Francis, I appreciate that. I appreciate all the information that you've given tonight and the explanation of what the Reformed Calvinist uh, view is on the relationship of, of uh, faith and works. I, I, I think that if, if we say it enough, um, you know, we're initially justifi justified by faith alone in Christ, that, um, that, that we get to the point that we believe that the claims that we're making about works as a requirement um, kind of nullifies what those those views are as it relates to justification. And, and what I mean is, I, I, I understand what the Calvinist is saying. They're, they're saying that the true faith is the faith that works. Uh, if, if a person is truly a believer, they're changed inwardly to the point that when all things become new, that literally means that the work of God in them is not going to fail. It's going to persevere to the end because it's not truly the believer. Uh, that is doing these these works, um, either for merit or or for obligation, uh, but because it's the grace of God that's working through them to give them the ability to do what God has chosen for them to do, as 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 required through uh, the number of things that we've 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 given as examples, 
and specifically uh, the requirements of the law, the requirements of the sacraments as receiving uh, the ongoing effectuality of the means which God has chosen to bestow upon his elect. I, I think fundamentally the grounds of the conversation is is founded on election, but that's not really the debate. So when we look at the debate, we're looking at the relationship between works and faith. I think Francis has done a really good job of illustrating the Calvinist position to show that there's a difference between what he thinks is is uh, two different types of faith. The faith that truly saves is the faith that works and perseveres to the end of one's life. Uh, and if one falls, they won't finally and fully fall away from the faith. Uh, and, the, and the faith that doesn't save, as in justify, uh, would be a faith that never justified in the beginning. Uh, one, that, one, one that could fail, one that does fall away, and those sorts of things, which we'll look at the problem text as we get in into our cross-examination. But what I think is missing in the conversation is you hear it so many times that it's all, it's all monergism. Uh, the Calvinist is the monergist and everybody else is the synergist. Um, but I, I honestly, I really do think that Calvinism is, is, is very synergistic as it relates to the requirement for perseverance. I know that they say Perseverance is not a requirement for justification, but those who are justified will persevere, uh, and and the perseverance is all by the grace of God. But to me, it's not any different than hearing the the Catholics say the elect are those who are infused with grace at justification by faith alone, and then given the the ongoing grace to have ongoing justification through their works. Um, and, and those whom God has chosen, the elect, before the foundation of the world, and given the grace to do the requirements of what he's required. It's, it's just worded a little bit different, but essentially it's the same concept. So what I see is the Reformed Covenant theology, what they tout as monergism, it turns out to be blatant synergism by requiring man to continually work for salvation in partnership with God through the, the supposed means of grace. Now, just because we say they're the, God has means of grace and God's given us the grace to reach these means of grace, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a work. It's exactly what Paul condemned in Galatians uh, 2. He, it's a very, very, very strong distinction in what we're saying justifies. And anything that's attached to that justification as a requirement and not just like a one time, like you'll, you might have one good deed in your life. Like it, it's to the end of your life, the day that you die, if you don't die in a state of grace, like you are never saved to begin with. Like this is a hardcore doctrine. I hope, I hope you guys understand like the gravity of what we're saying when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. This is not like some small thing, like, ah, oh, the saved are going to have good works. We're, you're saying like there are specific things the saved are going to do. Like, we don't know who the elect are, but here's what we can look at because God guarantees that the elect are going to do these things. So if you want to be the elect or you think you're the elect, you better be doing these things. Now, consider this quote from John Piper. I know there's consistent denials that it's not a works gospel. The Calvinist requires perseverance and faith in good works is clearly not just an inevitable result of regeneration, but ongoing an ongoing condition that all saints must fulfill for final salvation. 
John Piper says, the New Testament says we must meet in order to inherit final salvation. We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of life everlasting. And keep in mind as we talk about these things that God has chosen who will persevere by determining who will believe. And not just that they'll believe on their own will, but he literally gives them a grace that changes everything about them. So they're going to do exactly what he wants. So he also does the same thing in sanctification. So, I mean, it's, I don't, it's kind of a strange debate to have because in all honesty, what difference does it make if God is the one determining the will of man so that he uses the means of grace for salvation, as in the case of Catholicism, man simply chooses to use such means out of his own volition. In either case, the means of grace has to be used to obtain sanctification and final salvation. And faith alone is no longer alone, and it's no longer the sole condition for salvation. So if works are a means of grace, then grace is no longer grace. You can see that in Romans eleven six. 6. Um, According to many statements by leading Calvinists, salvation still depends on how we live and whether you as a believer do the following, endure to the end in the way of righteousness, do not have a persistent unconfessed sin, persevere in obedience when it comes from faith, hold fast to Christ, have watchfulness and prayer, keep the commandments, hold the sacraments whereby you are predestined to receive the means of eternal life. Okay, there we go. Seven minutes uh, rebuttal from Josh. And time is flying by. Very interesting debate so far. And uh, I'm pumped for the discussion here that we are now uh, heading into. So um, this cross exam is broken up into four rounds, two each, 15 minutes each for a total of an hour. Guys in the audience, this is your moment to uh, tag me with any questions you may have, especially now that we have the openings and rebuttals uh, complete. So what we can do is, uh, since Josh just ended with his rebuttal, we can have a Turretin fan start us off in terms of leading the way and asking questions for the first round. So gentlemen, the floor is yours. getting my counter going. Thanks very much. Uh, and thanks for the presentation that was provided. And I think it makes sense for this cross-examination for me to focus on the scripture that you identified in the uh, in your constructive, which was James chapter 2. And I would just would like to discuss James 2 with you by asking you first, what's the answer to the question that James asks What does it profit, my brothers, though a man says he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a a great question. the The answer is uh, it's it's rhetorical. It's no. I think everybody on every side agrees the answer is no. the 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 problem is not the answer to the question. The problem is really understanding what the question is talking about specifically. Is he saved from what? Well, I don't think that he's discussing a type of faith, number one. 
But two, I, th- I don't think he's discussing a type of faith that saves from hell to heaven. And if you look at it contextually, James is speaking to believers. I, I, I think I gave like nine different references that show he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers. He's exhorting these, uh, these Jewish believers um, to not just have faith, but to put that faith into action through works to actually benefit somebody, to benefit themselves for one, but also to benefit those in needs. And you can see that contextually. I won't take all your time, but but you can see contextually he's talking about a brother or sister being naked and you just saying like, oh, be well, brother, like, and not actually helping them when you have the means. So in the in the second one, in the second question, the, the question of, well, I don't know if it's second or third, but the question about, if one of you says, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things that are needful, what what is a profit? The answer there, you would agree, is that it, there is no profit in just telling people, be warmed and filled, and not actually doing anything about it. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. in when the man says he has faith, is, isn't, it, isn't it the case that James is actually focusing on the man's profession of faith, not just, not the fact not the question of whether he actually has faith there. No, I, I think he's he's talking about the benefit of faith. Uh, he's not talking about the profession of faith. And you can see that in, in the examples that he gives uh, with Abraham and Rahab. And it, it's summarized in, in the final analogy that he gives between a body and a spirit. A body uh, not being animated by a spirit when it has no spirit, a, spirit, a body being dead. It's not saying the body is non-existent. It's it's actually not not saying anything about a profession of it being a body. It's it's being compared to faith and works and faith being useful in the sense of helping this brother or sister that's naked and destitute of of daily food. So contextually, again, uh, faith is of no benefit to the person in need when you have the means to uh, help that person. So put put works to your faith, add works to your faith, uh, like Abraham, like Rahab, and it's, it's going to energize it. It's, it, that's what it's designed to do. It, we're, we're called to, to grow in maturity. Why does James use the expression, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? Why does he use that expression, justified by works there? So this, this is um, a great, great, great question. Um, and th- this is something that I'm going to look at with you as well, because we have two very, very different understandings of how the word justified is used here. Um, and, and hopefully we'll draw that out, because essentially when, when, you, when you start like you did in identifying whether he's talking about a type of faith, a, t- a faith that saves versus a faith that doesn't save, and then trying to, to drag out from there, well, he's either tr- talking about a profession of faith, and then we get into these examples of a faith that actually saves versus one that doesn't is, is a faith with works versus a faith that, that doesn't have works. So I think that we both know that, that the word justified, it's, it's dikaio, it's used throughout the Bible in, in the sense of, of righteousness. It's also used throughout the Bible in the sense of vindication. You can see that in Matthew 11, this, this same word is used of Jesus. I don't think that it's, it's talking about any imputed righteousness to Jesus. 
I don't think that we're talking about imputed righteousness to Abraham here. Um, you can see in BDAG also, BDAG, when you look at Dikaiao, it's it actually gives vindication as a, a, um, a possible translation. So when we're talking about a vindication of works, I think contextually that's what we're describing. We're not describing an imputed righteousness by works to Abraham by what he did through sacrificing Isaac on the altar. I think that the discussion is rather, uh, you can see in verse 18, the demonstration of me saying I have faith uh, versus someone who's saying, yeah, I'm a believer. And then you see, well, has that faith been put to works? Abraham is the best example. You can see that faith being put into uh, put into work right here. He's justified by works before men. Verse 18 is, is the indication that it's before men. Um, so hopefully that that would answer your question. I don't know. Would it, would you agree with the statement that he's when you say he's vindicated in that sense his by the works? Would you say that he, he's vindicated that he has faith is vindicated? Um, yeah, I I would say he's vindicated that he has faith, but in this example, it's not an example of vindication before God. It's a it's a vindication before men. So we're not describing again. We're not describing. Um, a requirement for the person of faith to have the works in order for that faith to be true faith. We're describing a faith in a person who has true faith uh, in order to actually grow in maturity, to actually be beneficial to somebody. So like, I hope the audience hears like this is, it's a huge distinction. I I'm trying, I'm trying not to underscore it too much. I'm trying not to overemphasize it too much. We're, de we're describing not a faith. Uh, we're, we're not describing the relationship of works here in James 2, 14 through 26 um, as whether or not it's a true faith, one that saves. We're describing the faith here that is put to work as a vindication before men that I said that I had faith. Uh, well, you can see that I actually put that, that faith to work as a demonstration before men, not a demonstration before God to, to show whether or not, you know, it was true faith or false faith, if that if that makes sense. Uh, well, the I guess the related question I have for you, I don't know if it's related or not, but it, I think it should be since it's part of the same text. You say that uh, faith without works is dead. You obviously agree with yes. that because it says so in, in so many words. Uh, what does it mean for faith to be dead? Yeah, it's useless. Um, useless for what, though? It, it's useless to benefit either the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. It's useless to benefit the person who's in need of the believer to help them. And you can see that contextually, this person uh, in verse 15, a brother or sister's naked, they're destitute of daily faith, daily food. And you, you, you say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled notwithstanding you give them not those things which they're needful of the body. So this is temporal deliverance, a bodily um, need. And the person with faith, the believer, is, is, is uh, kind of described as being beneficial to that person contextually. And then you've got the, the transition in verse 18 where... The guy is, they, they move into the discussion of 
the relationship of faith and, and works as it relates to a demonstration of how do I know if you're truly a believer as it relates to those two things. And the answer is not here's how you see if the person has true faith or not. The answer is here's how I see if you have faith, not whether or not that faith is true. Do you think that it means the same thing when it says dead faith and, and you said it's useless for anything, including uh, including final judgment, I guess? Uh, is that also the meaning there when it says, can faith save you? Is it also denying the same point that there's no benefit for salvation to such a faith? Yeah, so this is what I was talking about in my opening. The context of this passage is temporal deliverance, not eternal deliverance. So the temporal deliverance of salvation here would, would be a reference to the vindication, which we, we saw as being before men and not before God. I think even the Reformed position says that this is a vindication before men and not God. If it's, if it's not, then that would be pretty problematic. But um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but the question, can you, can you say the question? I think I just lost my train of thought. No, no, I think I think you clarified that the point that I was asking, which is you're saying that this salvation is a temporal salvation that he's right. talking about, not a, not a salvation from sin uh, on the final judgment. Right. And uh, the question then is, when it says in verse 20, but will you know, O vain man, who is the vain man James is addressing? So you've, you've got a... The, Understanding where the the objector who is introduced into this passage begins and ends is pretty important. Um, I, I think if we if we go back to it, you've got you've got the introduction in verse seventeen. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Verse eighteen: Yea, a man may say, "You have, uh, thou hast faith, and I have works." A lot of a lot of people stop right there, and and say that's the that's the introduction of the objector. Uh, you have faith, I have works, and then they they would say James comes back in and says, "Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works." Well, in the Greek, I mean, you know, there's no like quotation marks to show like where the the quotation of the objector begins, where where it ends. I think that it it makes sense that the entire verse 18 is is the quotation of the objector and James comes back in in verse 19 with a rebuttal. In verse 19 he says you believe there's one God uh and you do well. The devils also believe and they tremble. And then he says but will you o vain man that faith without works is dead. Is still describing not a faith that doesn't has work have works as that man going to hell, but that man without with faith without works as uh, the person who is not doing well, the person who is not vindicated, the person who says they have faith but doesn't have works. There's no way to put those two things together and go, okay, like this faith has been put to works. This faith has been put to work. Um, so basically, you've got two people here. You've got the objector saying, like, I, you can't tell if someone is saved just by looking at them and saying, I've got faith. Like, you can't look at somebody's faith, but you can look at somebody's works. 
So it's not a determination of whether or not faith is real saving faith or not. It's being able to look at somebody's work and going, well, that backs up their claim that they have faith. The faith that saves eternally is not the faith that saves temporally before men. The eternal one is before God. The temporal one is before men. So why is this man vain? Why, you know, vanity, vanity, all, uh, all's vanity. It means emptiness. Uh, it's, it's what vanity means. Uh, yeah. In what way is, in what is he empty of, if not faith? Right. Well, okay. So the idea is, um, well, first of all, he's empty of works. But the idea is that uh, this guy is saying, I have faith. The whole conversation is around like, well, what's the benefit of faith? The benefit of faith is to help others. The benefit of faith is to grow in maturity. It's it's all of these things that we're missing out on of what what you say is initial justification, the distinction between justification and sanctification. So it's yeah, go ahead. It seems from verse 23 that the benefit of faith is the imputation of Christ's righteousness, because it says Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Well, the benefit of faith. Okay, yeah. The benefit of faith is the imputed righteousness of God. But we're we're talking about, I thought we were talking about the objector, the objector's, um, re, uh, the objector's introduction of the relationship of faith to works as the benefit. Well, James, at, at verse 24, after saying that, by works, faith was made perfect. And we're out of time, so I'll save this question for the next uh, round. Okay, I, I was going to either recommend uh, that Turretin fan or this could be the last question Josh can answer, but you can save it for next round, however you'd like to do it. I'm fine. If this keeps it in kind of a, a category of the first the first round of questions, I'm fine to answer it. If not, I, we can go to the second round either. It's, it's up to you, Francis. Do you want to pose the question as, as a final <laughs> question for let, this round? or let, Let's save it for the next round. Sounds good. Sounds good. You guys are doing a fantastic job and very easy debate to moderate. Very respectful and cordial. Really enjoying it. So here we go. Second round, 15 minutes. Josh, you get to lead the way and uh, ask questions. Go ahead. So um, as a Calvinist, you believe in faith alone for salvation. And personally, as I've, I've said throughout uh the debate up to this point, I think that there's a lot more that's being said. Um, and, and I think that we will draw that out. That's kind of my goal in the cross-examination. Um, but the first set of questions are going to be general. Uh, the second round is going to focus more on specific texts that we can look at together. Um, but the, the, the first general question that I have and is this. If, if you must persevere in your faith to the end of your life to be saved eternally, do you agree so far? You have to persevere to the end of your life in order to be saved eternally. Uh, it's or not you a, will because you're saved eternally. How would you word that? I would word that as because you've been adopted as the child of God and because God loves his children, he will bring you through to the end. He, you know, What he's begun, he'll also finish. Okay, perfect. So if you haven't yet reached the end of your life, kind of transitioning from a more general side to a more personal side, for you, Francis, personally, how can you really know with certainty 
whether you can escape God's condemnation in hell right now today? Well, the Gospel of John tells us that these things were written so that we can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have life through him. So anytime someone has, uh, someone struggles with assurance that they will be with, with God, their solution to that problem is to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And not to try to build up our assurance on, you know, I did such and such on, on such and such day. Therefore, based on my personal merits, my personal deeds, therefore I'm going to heaven. Instead, trust in Christ. Every time we're faced with some new obstacle, something yeah. that, that intimidates us, trust in Christ. That's always the answer. So um, when, when you're looking at, and I, I would agree, I think, that, I think that looking to Christ alone as the assurance of your salvation is what we should do. But it seems like there's a very strong emphasis on those who don't persevere to the end of their life, that they were never really those who were elect and chosen of God. So it, it kind of, I mean, you can see the conundrum. It seems like, uh, you know, there's, there's a bit of an emphasis that you're like, man, I don't know if I'm one of the elect because if I'm not, am I really persevering to the end? It seems like there could be a problem. So it, if you were to look at your life today, would you be able to say, like, I am, I've, I'm in a state of grace, I've, I'm persevering, I've done everything that the elect would and should do? I think that that type of question is, I think it's okay to say that. I mean, Second Peter 1.10 says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. So it's okay to do that, but it should all, and a self-examination should always bring us back to a realization of our sin, of our need for a redeemer. It should bring about repentance of from that sin and trust in Christ for salvation from that sin. It, that's how it should always be. And it should always be that we find places where we're not yet perfect. So Paul himself says, you know, the evil that I would do or the evil that I, I would not do, I do. So there's there's times of imperfection in a Christian's life. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I'll, I'll move and move on. Okay, so if a, if a sinner is trusted solely in Christ's finished work for his eternal salvation, but at the final judgment, he's not found to have had sufficient good works of his own accompanying his faith to finally justify him, Will he not be rejected by God according to Calvinism? Say someone who believes in Jesus, they trust in Jesus as their savior, their substitute. But but let's say they don't keep the commandments, they don't keep the sacraments, they don't re, they don't grasp the means of what God has given for justification for the elect. How how does that work in your mind? So uh our justification before God on the judgment day is the same as our justification before God initially. There's no, there's not some different standard. It's not like we're justified before God on the basis of Christ's works plus our works on the last day, but right now we're just justified by Christ's work. I know that there have been some teachers who are broadly in the Reformed camp, and uh, maybe Piper may even be one of those people who have said some things that sound a bit like... Uh, or have been interpreted, let's put it like that. They've been interpreted as, as having that kind of take, but that's not what the 
That's not the reform what the reform standards say. And it's also it's a it's problematic because it would if we say that on the on the final judgment we're going to be judged on the basis of our own works, we will fail because we are not perfect. Do you see a distinction between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment for the believer? I don't have you know I'm not a dispensational, so I don't have the you know dispensational eschatology that might make a you know a sharp distinction. Yeah. So there, okay. So um, both both the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment books are opened. People are judged by their works. Revelation twenty, verses First Corinthians five, First Corinthians three, Second Corinthians five. Um, we are going to be judged by our works. You agree with that, right? We. So all of our there's yes and no. I mean, we will be judged by our works. But those sins that we do will be imputed to Christ, and His righteousness will be imputed to us, which is the only way we'll pass that judgment. We'll never pass so, but, it on the basis of our but, works. Yeah. But those sins have already been imputed to Christ, right? Yes, all, you know that that you know a formal declaration of it in front of everyone hasn't been made. But the uh, yes, it yeah. Has. But uh, so, what works are we going to be judged for, though? Like what everything judgment? that we do in the flesh. Yeah. So, okay, so what judgment is there for the believer in that case? There, there will be no condemnation because we have Christ's righteousness on <clears throat> instead of our own. Now, in in First Corinthians three, you see it. You see that the man, the works go through the fire. Some some are burned up. Some suffer loss. Um, so there, it, it seems like there is an actual result of that judgment. That 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 judgment either results in loss or gain. But if there's, if there is a judgment of the believer for their works and they, they are lost. I, I wonder how that relates to the, the reformed concept that the works of the believer, all the negative ones are imputed to Christ. All the positive works of Christ are, are doubly imputed back to the believer. So double imputation. Um, if there is loss, if there's still loss, because the idea of perseverance of the saints is the elect are only the elect are all going to fully persevere, fully persevere. Like there's no, there shouldn't be any loss in full perseverance. If you ask me. Okay. You, you remember that the, what in that passage you're referring to the what's lost there are, are the works are burnt up, but even, even if someone has, no, no works. They they escape basically by the skin of their teeth. I, I remember it says as by fire, meaning like a person who ran out of a burning building. So someone who didn't persevere, all they had was faith. They, they would, those people still persevere, but they they just don't have anything. Uh, it's talking about the works of of preachers, but it's in any event, it's it's saying that they don't have anything. Uh, that's in the category of gold and silver right. and so forth. So but, nothing I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like the elect are the chosen of God, like the chosen to fully persevere to the end of their life. Like there's no like somewhat sanctification. You, you speak in the Westminster Confession that it's the efficaciousness of justification is just as efficacious in the sanctification of God because it doesn't have anything to do with man. So as it relates to the judgment of the believer, you would think if the elect fully persevere, no one is escaping by the skin of their teeth. 
they're getting everything because they've fully persevered because it's the work of God. Right. I, I don't know. It seems as though you're asking me a question of, I think maybe you're assuming that God's going to sanctify everyone the same way or to the same extent or to give them all uh, the same level of works or all amazing, you know, the same experience in life. And I guess the question is, um, are there different levels of sanctification for the elect? Yes, of course. For full perseverance. Of course, yes. So every all the elect are going to persevere to the end, but have different levels of sanctification? Well, I mean, I don't know if they all have different. There's many, many people who are going to be saved. Well, you know, that um, there's no indication that they all have the same. Okay. You have an example of the thief on the cross. There's no time between the time that he was converted and the time he okay. died. Um, yeah. I, I think there's there's more that could be drawn out on that concept, um, but I'd, I'd like to see what you think about this quote. Uh, let's see. Okay, so saving faith is no simple thing. It has many dimensions. Believe on the Lord Jesus is a massive command. It contains a hundred other, th other things. Unless we see this, the array of conditions for salvation in the New Testament will be utterly perplexing. What do you think about that quotation? I think that quotation obviously needs a lot of explanation because, you know, by itself, yes, is it is it true that salvation, that the command to believe also entails a number of other commands? Be baptized, for example, is mentioned. Believe and be baptized. Right. Uh, does that mean that if you're, if you only believe and you never get around to being baptized, then uh, that's not, you know, the faith is not going to save you. That, that's not what's intended by that, those kind of comments. But I think without some explanation, it could really be uh, easily taken in the wrong way. Uh, okay. Now here's one other quotation. Donnie, how much time do I have left? Maybe a minute or two? I think you have at least three. Okay. So here's the, they're just, these are just some of the conditions that the New Testament says we must meet in order to inherit final salvation. We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. So, I mean, those seem to be quotations from the New Testament. Be, you know, humble yourself and become like little children. Um, I'm not, I can't object to, you know, what Jesus said. Obviously, that would be absurd to object to what Jesus said. Well, Jesus didn't actually say that. That was John Piper. Um, okay, so one more quotation. This is from R.C. Sproul. I, I can see Donnie's back on. We're probably running out of time. Two minutes left. Okay. R.C. Sproul says, endurance in faith is a condition for future salvation. Only those who endure in faith will be saved for eternity. He says the same evangelical obedience is an absolute necessity, a condition in man's justification. And Samuel Togan Jr. says, faith may appropriately be regarded as a unique condition of justification in the manner explained above, uh, but 
there are other conditions that without which justification will not be as well, and these conditions are indeed subsumed under the notion of evangelical obedience. So it seems like there's a lot more at stake than just saying faith alone really saves, but we're actually saying faith and obedience are necessary for justification. So it's interesting that you say that because I think, and I do understand how someone could uh, interpret the words that, that you've just read in that way. But I also think that they, you know, the people, I, I can't speak for Piper, obviously, but, and he's around to speak for himself. But in terms of what um, Sproul said, he's, he's no longer with us. Uh, but he, he would still affirm that justification, the, the grounds of justification is the, the righteousness of Christ alone, not, the, not our righteousness with it. So when you say that something is necessary for salvation, it can be something that necessarily accompanies salvation rather than being the ground of justification. And the way, the best explanation for that is that the spirit is given to us in what, when we're saved, therefore things necessarily flow from that. It's not that we're saved because of those other things, but uh, salvation necessarily does, uh, is accompanied by those things. Okay. Donnie, do we have time for one more, or is that it? Well, we've got about 25 seconds left. If you want to ask a really quick question, let uh, Francis answer it, then we'll move to the next round. I think this one could be quick. Um, so the final question is, if Jesus imputed his righteousness to us via faith alone, what need is there for perseverance as it relates to the believer at the judgment if faith alone really imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us? So it's not our position that we're justified by perseverance. And that's... I was so, just asking what benefit there is, not if... Okay, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. So I suppose the short answer might be, since the question's phrased in terms of justification, no benefit. Because our justification isn't based on anything we do. It's only based on Christ's righteousness. That's the ground. The instrument by which we obtain that is by faith not by the perseverance. Perseverance is not our, our means of justification, uh, but there, are, uh, there is benefit in union with Christ because uh, it's by union with Christ that we receive the benefits of salvation. Okay, gentlemen, again, uh, very engaging uh, discussion so far. I could listen to this all night and uh, time's flying by. So that's the first 30 minutes, the first two rounds. Now we're going to hand it back to Turretin Fan uh, to lead the way, asking questions for uh, another 15 minutes. Go ahead. Thanks so much. So let's go back to James 2. And in James 2, we, uh, we saw that James states that he asked the question, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Yeah. Uh, how does him offering Isaac, his son, on the altar justify uh, him by works? Okay. Uh, great question. Uh, so I, I think we can see again that this is a justification before men. The justification before men does not... Uh, grant in any way the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. I think we both agree on that. 
I think we both agree that there is an objector in here who is introducing a rhetorical question of what faith saved, what what benefit there is to a faith without works. The answer is there is none as it relates to this salvation. So whatever this salvation is, is going to be uh, what Abraham is justified by as it relates to his works. Because you don't see Abraham's faith being introduced here in verse uh, what is it? Verse 23? Is that what we were saying? No, verse 21. So you don't see Abraham being justified by faith. You see him being justified by works. All right. So that's pretty problematic for the faith alone position. If we're going to take this justification as the imputed righteousness of Christ, if it's, if it's the vindication, which is the justification before men, these works don't have anything to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ to Abraham by offering Isaac up on the altar. For the Roman Catholic, it would. For the Calvinist, it shouldn't, because you would actually say this. Actually, I'd like to hear what you have to say on that. I'll wait for that one. Um, but for the free grace position, we're, we're, we separate faith and works to the point that a lot of people call us heretics, like it's another gospel. We are the faith alone position. The faith alone position that the imputed righteousness of Christ comes by belief alone and nothing else. It's a one-time thing. One time. Jesus said to the woman at the well, like you drink of the water that I give you and you'll never thirst again. That's not what is happening in verse 21 here with Abraham. It's his works that are vindicating the faith that everyone believes that he had. And it should be the same with Christian. At verse 22, it says, do you see how faith, faith worked? It says, uh, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Yeah. Uh, what type of, what, what faith are we talking about there? Are we talking about the one, this one-time faith that you mentioned before, or some other faith? So the category, it's so hard, because it's, it's instilled in, in us that James 2 is describing two different types of faith, a faith that saves one eternally from hell to heaven versus a different type of faith that saves one from heaven to hell or versus a different type of faith that doesn't save at all. Um, but the, that's not the category that's being introduced. And the Catholic actually has it correct. They're talking about a faith that is benef benefited with works versus the same faith that's be not benefited when it doesn't have works. So we're talking about one faith, not two different types of faith, first of all. So the faith that is beneficial is, is the faith that works. And as it relates to uh, being made perfect, the, the perfection here is not the individual persevering to the end of their life. It's not anything to do with the concept of perseverance. It, it, it has to do with the perfecting of your faith as in maturing the believer. Because that's what James is, is about. The book of James is about the maturity of the believer. It's about the believer going on and doing something and not just having faith alone. Because that faith doesn't do anything for anybody as it relates to this life. Because that's what James is concerned with. So, so that faith wrought with his works as it's related to Abraham being justified by his works helped Abraham be made perfect. It energized that faith, those two things should always be together. We as Christians should work daily 
by faith, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. What does it mean when it says in verse 23 that the scripture was fulfilled? Doesn't it mean the same thing as when faith was made perfect? Um, so specifically, this is going back to Genesis 15, possibly Genesis 12, depending on where you you look at um, where Abraham believed God. Because you, you can see Abraham calling out three different times between Genesis 12 and 15. It's commonly, just for the sake of argument, let's say Genesis 15 is when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Um, Abraham believing God is a reference back to when he believed. It was imputed to him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God when he believed God. That's what we would call justification. So how is the scripture, how is that scripture fulfilled when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar? Um, the scripture that was fulfilled was when he believed, is not a reference of, this the scripture that was fulfilled isn't a reference of him offering Isaac. This is and, and maybe I'm wrong. I think I think this is talking about Genesis 15 when he believed God because that's the reference. So okay, so you you uh, do you think that Rom Romans four three and Galatians three six are the other New Testament uh, references Parallel, to yeah. uh, this statement? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's afraid, you know, the wording is slightly different between Romans 4, 3 and Galatians 3, 6, at least in our translation. But uh, do you believe that James is talking about the same thing as Paul is talking about in those two passages when he quotes this statement from Genesis? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I think that I think that we have a, a problem when we introduce um, kind of competing salvific views between James and Paul and and it's drawn out in James too. Like this is the text to go to, to draw those things out. But I, I think that Paul and James are both giving the example of when Abraham was, was truly justified before God was in Genesis 15. But keep in mind the example of when his works are given in the verse prior to that, as him being justified before men, was almost 30 years after Genesis 15. That was Genesis 22. So, I mean, you're looking at 25 to 30 years. Like either Abraham was justified before God when he believed, or he was actually justified before God 30 years after he believed when he offered Isaac. And if we have the faith alone position, which the Reformed guys like help themselves on, then you 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 either can join the two that that faith and and the works that are given for justification is, is when he offered Isaac or it was when he believed. Like that's kind of the, the line in the sand there. Isn't that line resolved if his acts 30 years later proved his faith, which came 30 years previously? No, because the question is emphasis before God, emphasis before men. What the Calvinist problem is as it relates to James 2, James 2 has completely ruined the faith alone message for the Calvinist because they, they see the relationship of faith and works as, as, as the faith that works um, being the faith 
that is a true faith. When specifically in this text, um, Abraham wasn't justified before God when he offered Isaac. He was he was he was justified, vindicated before man in that sense. So that would be the problem: is the faith Abraham had truth saving faith without any works up until that example of Isaac. In uh, in Luke four, Jesus goes to Nazareth. He picks up a, a the scroll the and the book the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens to the place in the book where it's written, this is Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering the sight to blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Uh, if, if I understand the way that you interpret Luke 4, you're saying that that was something that was declared in Isaiah, and now it was coming to pass in Luke 4. Is that correct? Um, I'm not sure I'm following the question. Okay, so we're in Luke 4. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to pull it up here. What's so I in Luke 4? I'm sorry. In Luke 4, uh, Jesus reads from Isaiah and then tells the people of Nazareth that this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Uh, and my, uh, I would, I would think that you would understand that to mean that Jesus is saying that what was prophesied in Isaiah is coming true now in Luke four. Um, sure. I'm not. Yeah, sure. Okay. For the sake of argument. Sure. I don't know what's, I don't know what the details are. I haven't, I haven't looked at it. Okay, well, the reason for bringing it up is because of the same similar expression here in James about the scripture being fulfilled. This says, and the scripture was fulfilled. So what does it mean to fulfill scripture, if not something like what it means in Luke 4? Um, so, okay, so specifically the scripture was fulfilled in the distinction of Abraham being justified before God when he believed. Like, I think that's, maybe that's the problem that we're seeing. Like, there's two different types of justification here in this passage. One is a justification before God, which is the one that was fulfilled from Genesis 15 uh, uh, in verse 23, James 2, 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him righteousness and he was called the friend of God. That was when he was justified before God. When he was justified by works, that was the justification before man when the objector introduces, like, how can you say that faith saves? Like, I can't see your faith. And then he says, well, Abraham offered his son Isaac. Like, look, he's he, he had faith. Like, God says he was saved in Genesis 15. But he offered Isaac in Genesis 22. That's 30 years later. Like, that's the vindication of Abraham. Uh, and when you talk about Rahab the harlot being justified by works, you would go back to the other kind of justification there, correct? Not the not the kind of imputation of righteousness. One hundred percent. This is not a justification of Rahab before God in the sense of uh, justification, like the imputed righteousness of Christ. If it is, that's well. Certainly, that's not the implication. I didn't mean to imply that in my question. Okay. I'm just trying to get the answer. So uh, let me uh, let me turn to a slightly different angle. You argued, I believe, that 
since James is written to the brothers, that this means it's written to believers. I wonder how you would explain then uh, pass passages like 1 John 2.19 and Jude 4, which tell us about these, the presence of false brothers. So 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. How do you yeah. how do you explain that? Okay, um, so there are people who profess to be saved that aren't saved. I mean, like the free grace position doesn't say like anybody who pro professes to believe is a believer. Like that's not our position. There are people who are not saved who think they are. So you would agree then that there are people who are in that group of the brothers, but who are not actually true brothers, correct? Um, I, I think in the context here, like they're speaking of a kind of like a, like if you want to say like a local, if you were to say a local church, like not everybody in the local church is, is truly saved, but you could say like they're part of the church. So it's kind of like saying well, they went out from us, they weren't really of us. Like, yeah, there's there's unsaved people that are that are among believers. And the same explanation then I I suppose would also apply to Jude four, which says certain men crept in unawares. Uh, yeah. Who were same explanation basically? Yes. So how is that possible that we could use their exit as evidence that they weren't truly of us? if true believers can also not persevere? Um, so I don't, I don't think that we're saying true believers can't persevere. And I don't, I, okay, so we believe true, true believers persevere to the end of their life all the time. But, right, but some people how would don't. It, right, so how would that, I'm sorry, if uh, I may be out of time here. If you want, uh, Turretin, why don't we, um, oh, that's okay. If you want to kind of ask that last question, we'll let Josh answer it and then we'll go to the next round, especially if it applies to what so, you guys are talking about here. Yeah, so the, so the, I'm sorry, to just to clarify that last question, the, the clarification was if John is saying in first John that the, we know, we know they were not of us, meaning that they were just, as you said, just people who said that they were believers, but they weren't. How is the fact that they left evidence of that un, uh, unless it's true that true believers would have stayed? Yeah, so um, I, I think that I'm, I, I might be misunderstanding like what you're, where you're going with this, but it, let me give it a try. I, I, I think that it's impossible to look at somebody's works alone and say whether or not they're saved. I, I think that there should be a pretty good gauge to be able to look at somebody's uh, profession of faith like they do in James 2 with the examples they give with Rahab and, and Abraham. Uh, but I, I think that if, if you look at Fred Libram's book, uh, he, he gives, um, he, he gives oh, what does he call it? I can't think of what he calls it, but he gives um, kind of this, this diagram of whether or not you can tell somebody is saved based off of their profession, based off of their works. And as it relates to Jude 4, as it relates to 1 Peter, um, they they went out from us because they were never really among us. Doesn't, doesn't negate the fact that people 
can say that they have works and not really be true believers or, or can have good works and not really be true believers or can be true believers and not have works. Like you can, from our position, you can be saved just by belief alone, like justified. You, you won't be fully sanctified without works, but the justification side is, is, uh, I think maybe where, where we're going here. Maybe I got that wrong. I don't know. Hopefully I answered that. Probably not. Well, what we Sorry. can do, we, no worries. If that's okay with, uh, with you guys, we'll make that the last question and answer for that round. Now we're moving into, uh, the final round we're at the 45 minute mark in terms of the cross exam again time's flying by here tons of fun and josh you now get your your second round in in terms of asking and leading the way with questions so go ahead gentlemen floor is yours okay so the first round i wanted to focus on general questions and kind of see where the conversation went uh in this conversation i'd i'd like to focus on more textual concerns because I, I think there's problem texts. I think that you would admit there's 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 seeming passages that look like somebody truly believed that their works don't line up to it. Like they, they either apostatize, they're a carnal Christian, uh, these sorts of concepts um, that we need to really look at. So in 1 Corinthians 3.1, he says, And I brethren could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but unto, as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So I think that we can see like Paul is speaking to Christians and he's calling them carnal Christians. Do you have room in the reformed theology and, um, concept of perseverance of the saints for there to be true carnal Christians? Well, in the sense that Paul means here, yes, and in the uh, you know in the explanation of the position that I pre presented as well, there there's you know under that third point of nevertheless through various temptations they they can fall into grievous sins, uh, but in this case Paul's not even talking about those people who are falling into grievous sins at some point. He's talking about babes in Christ, meaning. Uh, ones that are just, just at the beginning of their life in Christ. Okay, do you see any old nature that stays with a Christian, even with a new nature? Like the old man and the new man that Paul writes about. Do you see an old nature and a new nature? Yeah, there's the war, you know, Paul describes it as a war in our members. So the Calvinist position is that you have the old nature with you even as you're justified is that correct yeah yeah we're not justified by our works but the the true born again regenerate believer has the old nature with them until the day they die is that correct they yeah they un until they're glorified which is either at their death or at Christ's coming yeah uh wh what about the concept of one standing versus one state. Have you ever heard those terms before? So if, if you mean like a judicial standing before God versus the state of their, uh, their, you know, how, how just, how sanctified they've become. Yeah, it's so kind of like your, it, like your relationship versus your fellowship. 
as it relates to Christ. So we are, we're united to Christ by faith. So we have a relationship with Christ that's on the basis of faith. It's not on the basis of our works. But we also have, you know, Christ is, has multiple relations to us. So we also can come under Christ's discipline. As a, uh, and indeed, God treats us like children by punishing us when we, uh, for our own benefit, when we fall into sin. So that's a part of being a child of God. Okay. Um, let's. Okay. So that's that's good. To I mean, because you you acknowledge that there are carnal Christians. That there's a there's a standing in a state. There's a, a Christians who can be in the flesh and in the in in the spirit. Do you, how do you take that? Christians who are fleshly versus Christians who are spiritual. Christians have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And they can grieve the Holy Spirit with sins, but they're they're united to Christ, and therefore they they have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. So there's there's a union that's permanent that's created at justification, adoption. Uh, adoption is that that permanent union, and that's that's why a lot of my discussion was about adoption. But do you agree that there are Christians who are in the flesh? I understand that it's kind of a buzzword to say uh, that you know, to use that because of the fact that I think uh, Paul contrasts being in the flesh and in the spirit. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what he mean if what you mean is that they're only in the flesh, then no. But if you mean that there's this struggle that Paul talks about, where there's the things he evil he does that he doesn't want to do then yes, I, that, in that sense, there's still carnality. There's still this imperfect yeah. sanctification so far. That's interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've talked to a lot of Calvinists who completely deny those categories altogether for the believer. Um, okay, so let's look at Hebrews 6. This is a major, this is a major um, textual problem, as I see it, for, for the Calvinist. It's, you've got the warning passages uh, in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, typically there's five main ones. Hebrews, Hebrews 6 is one of them. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, it says, For it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the heavenly ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, uh, Wayne Grudem says this, this is indicating that this person actually is, was a Christian or is a Christian, was a Christian. He indicates this is a believer. Uh, what does the Calvinist do for the person who was enlightened? Do you know of anybody who was, is not a believer, who, who has been enlightened, who's tasted of the heavenly gift, who was actually made a partaker of the Holy Ghost, tasted the word of God and the powers of the world to come. Do you know, are there any categories for non-believers who were never true believers? Never, never, ever. Like, is there a category like that? The only category like that would be an outward uh, participation. So as an example, the, uh, the only way in which someone can be enlightened and, and taste of the heavenly gift and be partakers of the Holy Ghost without being um, 
saved would be if they're if that's just an outward participation if it's not true and inward uh, which is why i think the author of hebrews goes on to say we're persuaded of better things of you things that accompany salvation so the the things that accompany salvation are are these other things so it, it's not stand, salvation is not alone so you're saying, uh, I want to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. This is someone who is never truly justified. Is that right? Well, remember that it starts off with, for it's impossible, right? So you, right. you asked me about, is there a category of people who are who can be enlightened and so forth and then fall away? And I said, the only way that could be is, is if someone was merely outwardly uh, in that in that category. But, but the author of Hebrews is saying that this is an impossible scenario. It's impossible for mm. someone to be enlightened and then fall away and then come back through repentance. So when we, when we focus on the word tasted, Jesus is, is also, this word is described for Jesus as having tasted death for all men. Was this just like, how can we, make a category that this is just an outward profession without it actually being something that they actually tasted of. I don't think we should. I don't think we should make that category. You you, you posed it to me, like, <clears throat> could, what in what way could that be? And I, I tried to answer that question the way you asked it. But my answer is that if you are enlightened and taste of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Ghost, it would be impossible for you to fall away and come back by repentance. Okay, so let's take this for example. I mean, it a lot. I probably did it injustice by starting in verse four. Okay, it might be better to go to verse one and and start with the category of who it is that we're talking about. In this context, do you think that the writer of Hebrews chapter six is speaking to believers or unbelievers? It's. It's not just verse one that makes me think that. It's also verse nine, uh, because it says, "Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, the things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak." But okay, so you said it's it it's not just verse one, but verse nine that makes me think that. What it makes you think what? That this warnings are to believers. So this is to a believer. Yep, a believer who has just an outward. No, no, no. You, believers actually do. Yep. Believers are actually enlightened, actually taste of the heavenly gift, and are actually made partakers of the Holy Ghost. So, um, I, I guess the category, the question is, if they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That now that we're we're in the category of believers, these people can fall away, and this is the warning that they. They can fall away and they can't come back to repentance. You're saying that the believer can never fall away and therefore repentance would never be necessary. But it seems like the writer here is saying if they fall away. So I, I, maybe I'm getting it. You th Do you think this is just a hypothetical warning or is it something they can actually do? I think, I, I mean, I do take impossible in a very strong sense there when it says that it's impossible. And I also take the fact that uh, verse nine says, we're persuaded of better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we speak thus. So I take this as a hypothetical situation, a situation where if hypothetically, 
this impossible thing happens, then this would be the, this it would be impossible for them. It's impossible that they could fall away and come back. So you think that um, verse nine gives a, an indication that he's speaking hypothetically? Absolutely, yes. What what specifically in verse nine makes you think that? We are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. But what? But how does that make verse uh, six hypothetical? I don't understand how that makes verse six hypothetical. If he's persuaded, if he's persuaded of better things. I, I think that it would be because of the, the warning that they need to go on to perfection lest they fall away. I think it's because he says that there's things that accompany salvation. Okay. Um, so let's, let's look at, let me see what we can do here. Oh, we need to go to James too, because I had some questions I wanted to ask you on that. James 2, do you see that justification uh, with Abraham as being what? What's the justification with Abraham in verse 21? In, in that case, it's a demonstration or proof of the fact that he truly believed God. It, it vindicates God's statement that Abraham believed. Well, that came after this. But my, my, in this verse faith isn't mentioned as the justification like faith is completely absent of the you take do you take this justification as like a like a legal statement or a legal declaration of the righteousness of christ being imputed to Abraham? like how do you how do you see the word justified here i see the word justified here as the as abraham's uh abraham our father being demonstrated to have true faith through his works being demonstrated it's a demonstration of indication of his faith so oh so you would use it the same way i would it's a vindication yeah in in that in some limited way yes the same <laughs> okay so he was so he he was vindicated by works um when he offered isaac on the altar but but that but you take it as a vindication before God. Is that right? No, no, uh, uh, of course not. Uh, the God knows his heart from the beginning. Right. This is a vindication for us. This proves to us that Abraham did believe God because there's no other reason he would offer up his only <clears throat> son he loved. Okay. And you see, you see, now I, I think that when we get down to verse 26, it's, uh, it might be, problematic we'll see he says the body without the spirit is dead so that'd be like faith without works is dead so faith without works is dead also it, he goes on to finish that thought and in the analogy that he's got here with a body without a spirit being dead if if the body is analogous to faith does that mean it's non-existent because it seems like we're saying if 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 the body doesn't have the spirit, if, if faith doesn't have works, then that faith is non-existent. How, how would you kind of clear that, that mess up? I guess I'd, I'd say it's one of the limitations of analogy is that no one says that a body is non-existent without the spirit, but yeah, the, the analogy is one of death. In other words, it's not a living faith. It's not a, it's not 
the kind of faith that saves, which is what you know the earlier verse said, what will that faith save? This is not true saving faith. This is a dead faith. That's okay. that's the analogy. Yeah. And, and Josh, let's do one more question, brother. Okay. Well, I've got to get a good one then. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Make it count. <laughs> hey, every question you guys have been asking tonight has been good. This debate has been awesome. Thank you so much. Mm. Well, maybe I need to go. Okay, let's end on Hebrews 10 and just get your, your take on this. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Sorry for the delay for those of you watching. I know that's okay. Did. Okay. For if we sin willfully after that, we've received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be the thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified in holy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now, I know that you're going to say this is another hypothetical, but I do not understand how you can get that from this text. How do you think it's a hypothetical for someone who is in the category of being a believer. They are, they're in the category of being a believer. They sin willfully. There's no more sins. Um, there remains no more sacrifice for these sins. And they've, they've, they've actually uh, trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant, which they were sanctified. They counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, and they were sanctified. How is how if if it's not a, a hypothetical, maybe it's something else. I'll just let you take it from there, see what you want to do with it, and that'll be my final question. So, anyways, thank you for your time on this cross examination. It's been fun. Thanks. So, this is an extraordinarily serious part of scripture. As, as you see, the warning ends at verse thirty-one. Uh, it's a fearful fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, it, it may be that this is just a uh, hypothetical warning and the great grave seriousness of the warning is what is uh, instrumental in keeping people uh, uh, doing what's right and trusting in Christ for salvation and not despising God. Or, as it says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, the context might be understood as these being people who, uh, speaking not so much of their actual uh, connection to Christ, but instead speaking of their connection to that assembly and that uh, their sanctification would be one that's just a spoken sanctification. Uh, I know James White has argued that the, I think it was James White, or maybe it was Robert Raymond. I, I apologize if I'm misattributing it. Uh, but some have said that that refers to Christ being the one sanctified. But in any event, the uh, 
it is a serious warning. We ought to take it seriously. And uh, we, I, one thing that I think both of our positions agree on is is that someone who is, uh, who who is, sanctified by God, will not come into eternal judgment. But I do think it's a warning that both both our positions ought to take seriously. And it seems to me that either we say that it, it refers to people who only claim this position, or it seems as though we both we we would say, and we don't necessarily have to say the same thing, that perhaps this is just a hypothetical warning, because verse 32 says, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were eliminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. So it may be uh, that the uh, that this is in, in some sense hypothetical with the, the confirmation coming in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But that's what makes me think this might be just hypothetical. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So I think that this fits better with an understanding of salvation being all of God, such that those who believe also persevere to the end and don't receive this judgment that's warned of in Hebrews 10. Appreciate that. Uh, final question and final answer. Gentlemen, that concludes the hour cross-exam. Uh, amazing endurance from the both of you. You've both endured to the end of this cross-exam, at least. So, <laughs> great job. Uh, tons of fun. And this debate needs to be shared around because it has been very comprehensive, very thorough, and it is such an important topic. So, okay, let's move into the concluding statements where we can wrap up our thoughts, wrap up our points. And we have uh, what looks like five minutes for the concluding statement. So, Turretin fan, uh, my good man, we are going to hand it to you for five minutes. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Thanks so much. It's very hard to do justice to this lengthy debate in five minutes. And I've already wasted a few seconds on that comment. What's the position that I defended here? The, the position I defended is one that is set forth in Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 17. It's consistent with the rest of the Westminster Confession and with a shorter catechism, which is another of the Westminster standards. And that position is that we are justified by faith alone, but that although Christians may fall into sin, as point three uh, acknowledges, according to point one, they will not be lost. So we do have to understand the warning passages in, in a, a, as a warning, that may be one of the instruments by which God prevents people from falling. He's able to keep us from falling, we're told. We argued that we're saved by grace through faith. We argued that salvation is both about what we have already had and what we will receive. We argued that faith means trust in God and not merely believing that God exists. We argued that justification isn't the only aspect of salvation, but that salvation also includes adoption. You know, adoption is something that comes by the Spirit, and the Spirit aids us. With Him, also freely give us all things, is what is how it's written in Romans 8. What is faith? 
It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. That's why we expect works to follow from faith, because that's how faith works. Faith works out. It's not inevitable. We're not saying that Christians' lives are always better and better and better, and there's never any backsliding. But it's a general principle. That's why Jesus can tell us to judge them by their works. That's why when we came to First John and we discussed in the cross-examination, as you may remember, why he said that we identify these people who went out from us as never having been one of us. It's because works are evidence of faith. They're not the things that sanctify us. They're not the, I mean, they're not, they aren't the things that sanctify us. God sanctifies us. But they're not the things that justify us either. They're not our basis of standing before God. Our basis of standing before God is only Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith alone. But Jesus will finish what he started, as we argued. Philemon 1, 3 through 8 mentions that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise from God. When he promises us that he'll never leave us or forsake us, or when he promises us things like what I just quoted here, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, we can take those promises. False faith is a dead faith. It's not the real thing. And I I would invite people to go back and listen. I, I don't think that the explanation or exegesis of James 2 works. I think it's better to understand James 2 as speaking of the claim of having faith, but having such a faith that doesn't show itself in works is worthless. It's as worthless as saying, be warmed and filled, and then not giving something to somebody. And I think the force of that analogy was lost in favor of saying that this that analogy means that the underlying point is about temporal salvation. On the contrary, we're told, we're told in that same passage that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And we're told that the person who's trying to claim that he has this bare spoken faith, in the passage, it's told that that man is a vain man, empty. What is he empty of? Well, he's empty of works. That's because his faith is just a spoken faith. It's not it's not an actual faith. And that spoken faith is like a corpse. It's not. It doesn't have life. It's not living faith. It's not the, the true faith. And yes, I understand there's a weakness of that in saying the word doesn't exist and corpse aren't exactly parallel, but they're similar. How reasonable is it to link faith with works? The answer is the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And uh, that's why in Galatians 5, that's contrasted with the works of the flesh. And yes, we don't deny that Christians will sometimes have those. We also mentioned that there's warnings to false believers, like in Jude. And these are people who claim to have faith, but don't. What's our basis of righteousness before God? We were asked this question, and the answer is trust in Christ. And that's the answer that we should come back to when it comes to the question of assurance. If you lack assurance, stop trying to justify yourself before God. Instead, just repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Perfect timing. Uh, Turton fan, I appreciate the five-minute concluding statement. Josh, we're going to hand it over to you. And uh, you also have five minutes for your concluding statement. Go ahead. Perfect. Thank you. Um, well, I appreciate you, Donnie, SFT, you guys for uh, putting this on and inviting me to do another debate. 
this is this is one that I haven't done before, Perseverance of the Saints. It's one that I've wanted to do for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons why I, I'd like to do the Perseverance of the Saints. I, I think Francis did an excellent job of representing the Calvinist position. I hope that the audience is able to see the strong distinctions that I was trying to draw out between the free grace position and the Calvinist position as it relates to the relationship of works to faith and the necessity of perseverance to the end of one's life and saying that it's necessary to have these good works to the end of your life and to die in a state of grace in order to go to heaven but it's not uh but it's not a condition for eternal life the those two things are totally opposed to each other i mean it's like saying the faith that saves is alone but the faith that truly saves is never alone faith alone saves but the faith that saves is never alone that means it's not faith alone and when we get into these categories, I think that we actually need to stop and think about what we're saying. And as it relates to the perseverance of the saints, you're not saying anything different than you must persevere to the end of your life and die in a state of grace, or you were never elect to begin with. The Arminian says uh, the elect are, are those who God sees will do this. The Catholic says, uh, those who persevere to the end of their life are required to do so, and God is not obligated, as 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 in a, an employer, to pay a wage. He's not obligated to give you eternal life based off your performance. But if he chooses to, he chooses to because you're the elect. You've been predestined, and God shows the, his grace to those who he decides to unconditionally. Um, it's it it's just worded different. It's still backloading the gospel with a requirement for works. It's a necessity. It's a condition. If you don't do this, God will not do this. That's not grace, even if we call it grace, even if we say it's it's the work of the Spirit to give us the grace to do these things. It's not any different than what the, the Galatians were doing. They they were attaching works to faith. It's exactly what they were doing. It's exactly what you're doing in the perseverance of the saints. If you don't do this, God won't do this. So while the Calvinist correctly affirms that works are not necessary for initial salvation, and there's still problems with that, they undermine the truth of salvation by grace alone when they also insist that good works must always accompany saving faith so that without such works, no one will obtain glorification, final salvation, or final justification. But doesn't that still undermine salvation by grace alone? If works cannot be a condition for initial salvation unless they nullify grace, then doesn't making works a condition for final salvation also nullify grace and the biblical truth that salvation is solely by God's grace from start to finish? That's the question. The true faith alone position is found in the free grace position. 
While the Reformed view clearly is saying so much more than faith saves, one must also persevere in faith and good works with a whole list of requirements that one must fulfill in order that God might show grace to those he's chosen before the foundation of the world to save. And keep in mind that's coming from a determinist worldview, that God is the one who determines who will receive initial justification and who will receive ongoing efficacious sanctification so that the elect and the elect alone will be the ones to persevere to the end in good works and faith. So to me, this idea of perseverance of the saints and the Calvinist doctrine of soteriology can be simplified in one word. It's election. Election is the gospel. You've either been chosen or you have not been chosen to have eternal life, and there's nothing you can do about it. I'd like to offer you guys something a little more hopeful than that. Um, Grace is free. There are absolutely zero conditions attached to it. You can take possession of that by faith. Any requirements of works attached to it is a false gospel. The gospel is so pure, it's so simple, it's offered and found in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And that's it. It's as simple as that. It's it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the message that I have for the audience. And uh, that's the message that I have for Francis. That's the message I have for all Calvinists, all Catholics, all Arminians. Stop attaching works to grace. I love you guys and God bless. Thank you so much, uh, Josh, and thank you, uh, Turretin fan and Josh, for a really memorable and uh, fantastic debate. I also want to thank you both for uh, giving me an easy job tonight, very easy to moderate. I don't think I had to step in once. So again, great job. All right, uh, gentlemen, we're going to get into some questions. Uh, before I get to the first question, I'll give you guys just a 15-second uh, breather here. I will say uh, two epic soteriology debates in three days. So uh, two days ago, we had uh, Wilkin and Sunjanis. That was uh, definitely a debate to remember. And of course, uh, tonight, the debate that we're currently doing, do Christians persevere to the end? So if you love soteriology, you've got two epic debates to watch and please share around. Okay, so as we usually do, Josh and uh, Turretin, I think you guys understand that with the Q&A here, uh, in order to move along smoothly, typically what we do is whoever the question is for, we'll give them the last word. Let's say the question's for Josh. Josh, uh, take, how about we say, uh, two minutes max to respond, then uh, Turretin fan can give his response, and then we would give Josh the last word. Can I have like a 30-second break? I got to run to the restroom real quick. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Uh, we All can right, do right a, a minute uh, bathroom break as uh, we are now over two hours. So, uh, Turretin, if you wanted uh, to step away too, for uh, it's up to you, brother. I want to make sure you guys are good to go for the Q&A. Um, Absolutely. Thanks. Okay. Okay, I appreciate it. So I'll go over a, a few more reminders, guys. Uh, so we've had uh, quite a few soteriology debates, and uh, we've got some nature of God debates coming up too. But those wondering about the evolution debate challenge series, yes, we've got a ton of those scheduled and uh, all ready to go for 
uh, the next couple months. So there are a ton in, in this evolution challenge series we've been doing. So uh, Atheist Junior, Dr. Dino coming up, I believe the 22nd. So uh, just make sure you're subscribed. Uh, there's probably about 20 events set right now. So uh, to get the exact times and dates, uh, just make sure you're subscribed. Check that event section. Uh, next week on the 14th, we've got an earlier debate. So this is Nick from Planner Walk, the Planner Walk channel. And again, Kent Evolution on Trial, the 11th at 1 p.m. EST. So again, we are going to be debating evolution. Is there reasonable evidence for evolution? On the, um, I believe it's this Tuesday, the 13th, we are going to be having a debate between our very own Professor David McQueen and uh, Taylor from the Snake Was Right YouTube channel. So they are going to be debating. Uh, actually, no, I believe this is, yeah, Tuesday. So they'll be debating the age of the earth. This will be their round two. So make sure you're here for that. That's going to kick off at um, 6 EST. So lots of debates to look forward to. If you're not yet subscribed and you love debates, you're a debate addict like myself hit that subscribe button. Okay, here we go. Now that we're all refreshed and good to go. Again, great job, uh, gentlemen, great endurance. So uh, here we go. First question that came in a long time ago is, let's get it up on screen here. Okay, question comes in from Kevin's Biblical Discussions, and this is a question for both. So we'll get one response from the Ichia, and then we'll move on. So he asks, um, that's staying for truth question for both. Abundance of faith is that proof that they were never saved. Hebrews 3, 6, 1 John 2, 19. Um, I guess we could start with uh, Francis. If you wanted to start with that one, we, we could go there. Uh, sure. So I my interpretation is that he's saying abandoning the faith yeah, as opposed to abundance of faith in terms yeah, of what I think yeah, he was right. intending to say. <laughs> I was kind of confused there, too. I think you're uh, right about that. If I understood that correctly, we did talk a little bit. Uh, I think we may have talked a little bit about First John. I'll, I'll mention that briefly. So Hebrews 3, 6, it says, Christ as a son, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Uh, and then First John uh, 2, 19 says... Uh, they went out from us because, they, but they were not of us. So that that's the one we we already discussed a little bit, and I do agree that there's proof that this is proof. This abandonment of the church is proof, or at least evidence, um, that that the person was not actually a believer. That is it proof. I don't think so, but I, I don't think proof is necessary. I think we it's fine to just say evidence because you know we are human beings our decisions are fallible and uh nevertheless the uh nevertheless there's a reason why this is mentioned and that is because ordinarily sanctification and growth in grace is what we see in the life of believers because they have the holy spirit that's why they don't go out from us and that's why such backsliding is or apostasy, you know, departure from us, why those are evidence that the person was never of us, that's that's why that's evidence. Because if it's true faith, 
ordinarily, the person would stay and grow in faith and not, not leave. Appreciate the response. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Um, so I'll just give a real short explanation. Um, I, I think the correlation is, is trying to be drawn that those who persevere to the end uh, are the ones who were the us, as opposed to those who went out from us. At, to, to look at the example in First John 2. But specifically, if you look at Hebrews 3, the, the example given is Moses and the Israelites. And if you look at Hebrews 3, it, it's talking about, uh, what's the word that was, what's the, oh, I'm trying to think of the word that was used. It's not, I guess it's not really that relevant. Uh, the, but the, the whole point is, if, if we're going to use the analogy of perseverance of the saints to, to kind of vindicate those who have true faith versus those who don't have true faith, and, and those who see the fulfillment of that promise that was given to them, the example is given in with, with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. And if you really look at what happened with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, Moses didn't inherit the promise. In, in fact, if you, if you looked at the performance of his works, he failed. Um, and, and, and there's only two out of that entire generation who did? It was Joshua and Caleb, and it, it was it was because of the their performance that they didn't get the inheritance that was promised. As it relates to the free grace message, we're not saying to persevere to the end so you get justification and prove that you were actually justified. We're saying that the perseverance to the end is is something that Christians need to do and take heed because the inheritance. Is, is something that's based on reward. The reward is, is something that is based off of your effort, your works. And it doesn't have anything to do with vindication of whether or not you are the elect. It has to do with whether or not what you did was by faith and was pleasing to God. And if we can look at Moses and the inheritance that wasn't granted to him based off his performance, I think we need to look at that and take it very seriously. Okay, I appreciate the responses from the both of you. And it looks like we have another question that is for the both of you as well. Uh, this time, what we can do to be fair is uh, give the first response to Josh, and then uh, Turretin fan can have the last word on this one. So here we go. A question from Honesty Angel. And uh, she's asking, according to your you know systematics of soteriology, are all believers disciples? And Josh, why don't we start with you? Um, so one of the books that I referenced in my opening was uh, Charlie Bing's Salvation, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship. Another one is by Lucas Kitchen. He wrote a book called Salvation and Discipleship. These are two excellent books that uh, describe the relationship of justification and sanctification as it relates to um, the salvation and the inheritance of the believer we draw really strong distinctions in the free grace camp between justification and inheritance. Um, and, and a lot of that can be seen in kind of the questions that we were looking at in the judgment seat of Christ uh, based off the performance of one's works. So this is something that I thought about years ago. Um, and, and you'll only find this in the free grace camp. As far as I know, you can have disciples 
who are not believers. You can have believers who are not disciples, but you should have believers that are, are disciples. Josh, appreciate the response. Uh, Francis, over to you. The short answer is yes. I think all believers are disciples of Christ. Although, interestingly, that that terminology doesn't make it into, as far as I'm aware, doesn't it come over into Paul's epistles. So it's meant they're referred to as disciples in the Gospels and in Acts, uh, but but believers aren't typically referred to by that label disciples in in Paul's epistles. But the uh, this, the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, uh, that it does, it is intended as a synonymous term. So there's not some distinction between uh, believers as one class and another class of disciples. But we're also more than just disciples. So uh, a disciple is in, his, in relationship to his teacher, like a servant is to his master. But And we have that relationship to Christ. So we call Christ Lord, but he says that we're more than that. We're friends. Abraham's called the friend of God, and how that is is by faith. And more than that, not just friends, we're called children of God, and we receive that through adoption and receive that at when we're justified. So we receive, by, as one of the benefits of faith, we receive the adoption of sons. So we're more than just disciples, but discipleship is part of the Christian life. Okay, Josh and Francis, appreciate the responses from the both of you. Okay, here we go um, for the next question, and we have a ton. Okay, here's one that comes in from the Layman Seminary, and uh, Charles, he's actually got a, a debate on a similar topic coming up as well uh, related to soteriology. Charles, we're looking forward to that. He's going to be debating uh, Daniel Mira, I believe on the 20th. Uh, just got to confirm the details on eternal security. That should be a lot of fun. Okay, so his question is for you, Josh. Uh, he asks, how do you view the relationship between perseverance and eternal life in Romans 2? And how do you differ from Jody Dillo's view there? Okay, so there's a, there's a two-part question there. Uh, one would be to recognize the first being the relationship of perseverance and eternal life in Romans 2. And then the the uh, kind of a comparison of my view to Jody Dillo. So in Romans two, most most often, if you're looking at Romans two, and you're using it in a, an example of perseverance, um, <laughs> one you should look at the debate that just happened between Syngenis and Wilkin, because that's specifically what that whole debate was about was Romans two thirteen, and in verse thirteen it says, uh, "For not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but." the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, you could either take that as a hypothetical, that uh, hypothetically this is saying that if you um, are a doer of the law, then you'll, you'll, be, you'll be justified as in receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, or, or you can look at it as, as something that is, you know, actually, actually doable. You, you, you could do it. Um, one thing that I'll say that I didn't say as we were going through the debate that I think is kind of a good time to say it now is as it relates to perseverance of the saints 
and even in Romans 2 and eternal life. I, I think that when we when we look at the perseverance, the persevering one, when we take our focus off of the perseverance of Christ and what Christ did for us in our place and place it on on the saint, it becomes very problematic as, as we're trying to distinguish uh, between justification and sanctification and those who will receive eternal life. It's a, it becomes a condition. If, if you're looking at the perseverance uh, and perseverance of someone to receive eternal life, it better be Jesus Christ because Romans 2.13 says that uh, you can do it by keeping the whole law, but Romans 3 says you can't. And, and James, James says that everyone's broke the law, and if you've broken one, uh, then you're guilty of all of them. So hypothetically, yeah, you could get to heaven by keeping the law, but he goes on to say a chapter later, nobody's ever done it except for Jesus. So I'd, I'd be looking for the persevering one, Jesus, <laughs> to give me his righteousness to receive eternal life. Thank you, uh, Josh, for that response to a good question. Uh, Francis, we'll hand it over to you. Go ahead. I can't speak anything to Dillo's view. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, no offense to Dillo, I'm just not familiar. I would, I would answer the point about those who seek to be justified by the law. It's the, there are some Roman Catholic folks who argue that this means that there's some justification by works in, in God's sight. And those, you know, anyone who argues that, whether they're Roman Catholic or anything else, is, is, has woefully misunderstood Paul's point. Paul's point is that justification by the law is dooms someone to be to condemnation because the only thing that the law will do is condemn because no one everyone falls short everyone is uh can, is everyone's condemned by the law even the gentiles who didn't have the torah are condemned by the law because they have it written in their conscience romans 2 15 and uh and god will judge mankind according to their works romans 2 16. Uh, but I think that the the part that connects more closely to our debate is Romans 2.29, which says, he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is out of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is of men, is not of men, but of God. So that goes back to me, doesn't it, Donnie? Okay. It does. So J Jody Dillo in his book, Final Destiny, um, he says this on this passage. He says, it's possible to understand justification, in parentheses, he says righteousness, in this passage in the other well-known biblical sense of vindication. As argued elsewhere, there are two kinds of justification in the Bible, a justification by faith alone, as seen in Romans 3.28 and 4.5, and a justification by works in James 2.24 and Romans 2.13. The former secures acquittal before the bar of justice and guarantees final entrance into heaven. The latter results in praise from God for a life well lived. Uh, Romans 2.29, 1 Corinthians 4.5. That said, I, I prefer to understand the phrase as the time when we will be perfectly conformed to God's will, that is, our glorification. He says both alternatives um, of the already not yet tension are plausible. So... Essentially, Jody Dillo takes Romans 2.13 uh, to be a reference to glorification one day when we are uh, fully sanctified. I don't know. I don't know that I would hold to, to that position. Maybe it's maybe it's possible, but I don't think that's the way that Paul is using it. 
I think that he's responding to those who are uh, looking to the law to justify them by their works alone. And I, I think that he goes on to tell these people, like, you're not cutting it and you're not going to do it. Like, he's, he, the righteousness of the Pharisees is pretty good. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're going to fail. And um, I, I think he's basically telling anybody who's looking to make it to heaven by their works that it ain't good enough. And um, you better be looking to Jesus for that. So I, I don't think that it's it's a reference to our future sanctification and glorification. So I might disagree with Jody there. Okay, appreciate the responses from the both of you on that one. Romans 2.13, that was actually the thesis of uh, Bob and uh, Robertson Genesis debate the other night. So, okay, here we go. Redefine living. Another question for the both of you. Uh, so his question is, what shall we make of Samson? Did Samson persevere to the end? Uh, anybody specifically want to go first on this one since it's a question for the both of you? I think that we probably would both agree on this one. Um, Samson, Samson, the final act in his life was an act of faith, uh, even if it was suicide, you know. Um, but, but it was it was by faith. Um, he recognized his failures. I don't think I don't think if I can stress anything that the correlation to the death of Samson had anything to do with. Uh, any ongoing justification or vindication of a faith that he truly had. I think that it was 100% separate um, from his justification in that, um, and that it was one final act of faith, not to show that he truly was saved, but um, kind of a tragic story of a life of sin for a believer who ended up in a place that he never should have blind um, uh, weak and uh, under under the power of under the bondage of the enemy, and I think that a lot of us can find ourselves in that place as believers. I don't think all of us um, would even have the strength of Samson to to end it the way that he did. Um, but I would I, I would say that yeah, I think I think Samson ended his his life in a, in a in a a, a place of faith. But I don't think that the works that he did was um, uh, anything to illustrate that he had true saving faith. So I, I just don't think there's two categories like that. Thank you, Josh. Uh, Francis, over to you. The way that Samson's end is described in Judges 16 in this way. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, Remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me. I pray thee only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, of the one on its right hand and the other on his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. And if anyone thinks that's not God miraculously answering Samson's prayer, then I'm not sure what to think. I mean, here's a man who had miraculous strength from God, which was taken away when his hair was cut. Another obviously supernatural circumstance. That's not the way that normally muscles are made and lost. And the fact that God restored his strength one final time as an answer to prayer seems to 
confirm that Samson was indeed uh, one of his servants, on top of which Hebrews 11 lists Samson among the examples of faith. And Hebrews 11.32 says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel and of the prophets. So he's listed there in the hall of fame of faith, despite his sin that he did uh, slip into during his life and chasing after prostitutes and uh, and not not living according to uh, God's law. And uh, he, does, he does seem to have some... Uh, repentance of some kind here in, in Judges 16. So I do think it is an example of perseverance. I don't think it's an endorsement of suicide or of, uh, you know, suicide attacks or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, and I can under appreciate that someone might think that his, you know, in some sense, taking his own life here, yeah, is not evidence of faith. But, uh, you know, I, I, I point out that this is something that he specifically prayed to God for and that God answered his prayer by giving it to him. And if you believe that God would do that for someone who's an unbeliever, you know, we're on different pages. Appreciate the responses from the both of you. We got another one uh, for the both of you here in the form of a super chat, pseudo Nim appreciated. And um, he says, question for both is the statement death without, I'm guessing faith without work is dead. Does it make sense? use James as a scapegoat to agree, but no, he was against Paul's grace of salvation. Hmm. Um, do you guys fully understand the question? Um, I think this is probably coming from a hyper dispensationalist position. It, it sounds like he's maybe implying that Paul and uh, James we're, we're preaching a different, a different gospel perhaps. Yeah. And so I'm not sure, but however you guys want to respond, um, whoever would like to start, Josh, you started the, the last one. We could have Francis start this one to be fair, but it's up to you Sounds guys. Good. I have a you know fundamental problem with the idea that Paul and James are preaching different gospels. And that's partly because I believe in, there's lots of reasons why, Big, bigger picture questions. There's the scriptures are inerrant. There's not two gospels preached in scripture. There's one gospel preached in the scripture. It's the same gospel that was preached to Abraham, not as clearly. It's the same gospel preached to Moses, although under a veil, so that it's not seen. And there's only one way by which men are saved. That's why in Acts 15, the Gentile, the, in, the bringing in of the Gentiles is described as being by faith, even, even like us. So there is no, there's no second gospel that James teaches that Paul didn't teach. And the way to reconcile these two teachings is to some extent, what both of us said in the sense that just when it says that they're justified by works and not by faith alone, it's not a contradiction of what Paul said. I think we both agreed on that point. Uh, now, how exactly we explained it is a little bit different, I think. Uh, as you can see, we just look back and listen to the debate. But uh, no, there's there's no contradiction between James and Paul. The same Holy Spirit that inspired Paul is the same Holy Spirit that inspired James. And uh, and they, they preach the same gospel. There's, there's not two different gospels here. So uh, I'm trying to think of an, another way to uh, to prove that. And it may be that... Uh, we could point out that 
Paul, I believe Paul mentions James in his epistles in a favorable way, which he wouldn't have done if he believed James was teaching a different gospel. Uh, and in fact, he, he describes anyone as an anathema who preaches a different gospel. So, you know, I, but I can't recall off the top of my head which verse that is. And, uh, and perhaps Joshua does know that. I'm not sure. Sure. Francis, thank you for that. Josh, over to Sorry, you. Sorry, my, my little dog is um, a terror. She's a half chihuahua, half terrier. So she's like super bossy. And <laughs> she like lit, I put her in the kennel at night and she's like clawing on the kennel. Now, now she's giving me trouble. But anyways, um, so the hyper dispensationalist view says that uh, Paul and James unapologetically are preaching two different gospels. James and the early church prior to Acts 15 is preaching uh, what they also believe is the Old Testament gospel of works for salvation, um, which is it's in it's insane. You've got. I mean, to get into the historical concept of where this came from um, and and how people can say, like, ah, oh, today we're saved by grace, but back then they were saved by grace plus works, it drives me nuts. Um, it, it, this concept is very personal for me because I've never said this online before, but I I came out of that teaching that's where I, that's what I came from. I'd never agreed with it. I always had an issue with it. And uh, for those of you who may hold to that position, and maybe the person who asked that question meant it in a completely different way, but, and, and I'm taking it that way, but it's, it's very, very problematic. I agree with what Francis heard in Fianna saying that the same gospel that was preached to Abraham is the same gospel that saved Abraham and uh, imputed the righteousness of Christ to him, even if he didn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, um, which is the same gospel that saves us. So without going into any, too much details about the heresy of, of that teaching, um, you might not even just take that seriously for anybody who's listening. It's, it's so problematic. But anyways... <laughs> Thank you, Josh and Francis. We both got an answer from you gentlemen, so I appreciate that. Next one uh, comes in from uh, 47, and um, question is for you, Josh. So the questioner asks, what does Josh Gibbs say about John 6, 36 to 40? Does he who believes and leaves actually nullify those statements, making the word of the Father and son of non-effect okay uh so so john 6 is like a huge passage to tackle in the bible essentially what you've got is the calvinist position that says that that those who are drawn are those who come the free grace position says uh, those who are drawn can come and then the, the secondary clause is uh those those who have come to the Father are given to the Son. Those who are, who are given to the Son are promised to be raised on the last day. The difference between the Calvinist position in John 6 and the free grace position is those who are, are given to the Son uh, came to the Father as a, as a response to the drawing. The Calvinist says all who are drawn 
are, are those who come and are given and raised up. So I hope you see the distinctions there. Grammatically, it works for the free grace position. Grammatically, it doesn't really work for the Calvinist. I guess you could kind of make it work, but it doesn't really work that great. You've got to read your theology into it to say those who are drawn or those who, who come and are raised up and, and are guaranteed to only draw the elect because those distinctions aren't made grammatically. Uh, but the, the question specifically as it relates to those who um, could nullify those statements of not being plucked out of the Father's hand, um, I, I, I don't think that even the individual who says, yeah, I don't want it anymore, can pluck themselves out of the Father's hand. So that's my position on that. It's like the ultimate faith alone position. The, the Calvinist one says, well, if you, if you did, you were never in there to begin with. But Francis can speak better for that himself. Go ahead, Francis, your, your turn. Yeah, I, I agree that no one can pluck uh, any true believer. No one can pluck them out of God's hand certainly not the believer themselves. If One of the reasons we need Christ for salvation is that we're totally inadequate to the task of saving ourselves. And the idea that we would somehow come to Christ for salvation and then he would adopt us as children of God, but then let us jump you know, is, is absurd. It, the idea that God, God's, we would be able to be separated by the love of God, not by all these other things, not by any creature, but we could separate ourselves from the love of God uh, in you know, referring to Romans 8 is uh, an absurd conclusion from my standpoint. And I, I think that I have a sound exegetical basis for saying that. As for John 6, I think it might be a, a great, uh, if uh, Joshua is interested in a future debate uh, with me on that subject, I think maybe debating the grammar behind it, uh, John 6 in uh, might be an, a fruitful debate. I think we will find that the verb to draw is a verb that implies the action is accomplished. So it's it's not like our verb to pull, where you could pull on something, but you might not affect emotion. It's more like the verb to bring. So all you know, you can't if you didn't actually bring them, you can't use the word bring. You could say try to bring, but but actually what it's the the word. That Greek word behind the word draw there is the same word that we talk about drawing a sword. Well, if you don't actually pull the sword out, you didn't draw your sword. Just yanking on the handle isn't drawing it. And the same way in, in uh, scripture, when only, there's only one other place that is contested what it means, and all the other places it, the action is affected or uh, it was unable to draw, which means the action wasn't affected. And that's really the clue. Like when it talks about the fish that uh, he was unable to draw the fish because they were too heavy. That that, that proves that, that that verb that behind the word to draw there isn't referring just to the effort of of trying to pull in the fish because otherwise you would say he drew them but they didn't come into the boat. Instead, it says he's unable to draw them. So that that's in a, a very brief nutshell what could be a much longer debate. So, Francis, appreciate your response. Josh, go ahead. Final yeah. word. Um, so I agree. I, th I think that the Calvinist interpretation does hinge on how they use Helkuo. Um, I might be saying that I might have that. Yeah, I that's think right. it's Helkuo. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so there's two different, there's, there's two, without getting into the grammar and the words that are used for draw, I think that'd be a really fruitful debate at some point. 
um, especially in how it's used in verse 44. Um, but spe- specifically to back to the question and the nullification of those uh, who would walk away or turn away. As it relates to the perseverance of the saints, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And I think this is a, a great example to the perseverance of the persevering one, Jesus Christ. Um, so there's Christians don't always make it to the end of their life in the faith. Because you can see there are some people who stop believing and yet Christ remains faithful because it, we're in him. He can't deny himself. We are in Christ. He won't deny himself. So I, I hope that helps. I, but anyways, that's my take on that, Francis. I'd, yeah, at some point, I'd, maybe we could do that. Awesome. That'd be great. Okay, great questions that have come in. I will say uh, as we approach the three-hour mark, um, I'm going to start kind of winding it down here. Maybe uh, one, possibly two more questions if we can fit it in. And again, this has been a really, really awesome debate. So, okay, this one comes in again, question for both. So we got a lot of these kinds of questions. This one comes in from Pure Aussie Gold. Question for both. Is someone that has never heard the word automatically saved, for example, jungle tribe, children that pass young, etc.? Um, any preference in terms of who wants to answer first? I'm happy to answer first. Sure, Um, go ahead. Appreciate it. So Romans 10 tells us, uh, starting at verse 11, for the scripture says, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So it goes on. uh, I should read the next two verse. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, So the answer that I have for that is absolutely, there's nothing in scripture that tells us that those who don't have the word of God are nevertheless saved. Whether God in his infinite mercy grants children belief that we don't understand, that's uh, that's on God's hands. If God wants to... uh, bring the word to the jungle tribe. God is capable of bringing the word to a jungle tribe. And the way he usually does that is by sending missionaries to that jungle tribe who then preach the word. And that's why verse 18 says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Uh, so yeah, there's there are missionaries that are being sent throughout the world. That's how people will hear and believe. And they need, you know, the word of God is the means by which they hear and believe. That's why the scriptures are written. And there's nothing that I found in scripture about people automatically being saved. So uh, now, like I said, God in his mercy can grant faith to who he wishes to grant faith to. And I'm not going to place limitations on God, but I'm telling you what scripture says. I don't see anything where scripture says people are automatically saved. Francis, oh, go ahead, Josh. 
So, um, so we both hold to a penal substitution atonement model. Uh, we have very, very different views on what the atonement um, accomplished and for who. Uh, I hold kind of it's it's been articulated in a doctoral dissertation by a guy named Scott Smith, uh, and he's coined the term pananastasism as it relates to the PSA model. And in, in, in this model, it holds a universal atonement that's effectual. Uh, it does not result in universal salvation. The reason that I hold to the penal substitution atonement model and, and believe that, that Jesus actually was a substitute that was effectual and actual for all men having tasted death for all men, every man, every man. I, I, I think that it actually provides a solution to the problem of sin, which is it was brought into the world through Adam, and that is physical death. You can see that in the work of Christ in resurrection. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Now, whether you end up in heaven or hell, it's based off of what you've done with, with the gospel. Francis brought up, Romans 10 and those who have heard versus uh, how, how they can hear the gospel and believe. But here's, here's the major difference. I believe that, that Christ actually purchased all people. Hebrews chapter, I, I think it's two, says that he, he actually made a purchase, a ransom for sin. And, <clears throat> and in this scenario, he now takes ownership over all people. What he does relationally with them is based off of what they do with Christ, what they do with whatever the conditions are in the sense of those who have never heard the gospel. So I personally, I know, I know that there's multiple different views on, well, what about those who have never heard? Um, I think that this model actually gives a, a good grounding for saying God's going to do what's right because he has ownership and has paid the penalty for sin for those he has uh, chosen, he chosen to do whatever he wants to relationally. I think that some people have got light and God gives them more light to the point that they either get the gospel or they don't. Um, but I, I, I don't, I completely reject the idea of a limited atonement and, and they don't get the gospel because God didn't choose them and they weren't elect. And the same goes for babies. I mean, you can essentially ask, answer the, the question for what about those who have never heard to what does God do with babies? Does God send babies to hell if they weren't elect? I mean, we've got to be honest here, not just say like we're making an emotional appeal. At some point, we got to go like, what? What does he actually do? Appreciate the responses from the both of you. And what we'll do is one final question. So here we go. Uh, we made it to the three-hour mark, and we'll end it with this last one. I do want to thank everybody in the chat. Very engaged in this important debate. And uh, we had a ton of awesome questions that came in. So I want to thank everybody for that. So this one is, uh, this one comes in from the Freed Thinker. Appreciate your question. And he asks, how does JG, Joshua Gibbs, handle John 5, 27 to 29? And I understand we all don't have the Bible memorized, so I can pull it up um, right here. If you're interested, I've got it up on screen. I'm sure you uh, gentlemen are going to pull it up as well. 
Um, so when you get to it, let me know. Have it, yes. Uh, well, um, I guess it's specifically for Josh. So Josh, whenever you're ready, we can have you have you start, brother. Um, well, I think I would answer this the same way I've I've answered every other question as it relates to um, works and judgment. I, I think that there's a distinction to be made between the judgment seat of Christ, which is for the believer. It's also called the bema seat, the bema seat, the great white throne judgment. Um, the believer is present. The believer is not being judged. First Corinthians six makes that clear that we are going to be the ones executing this judgment with Christ. And, uh, as it relates to, um, John five twenty seven. You can see in verse 24 where he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Um, this is in the emphatic position for everlasting life. It's something that you possess now. It's a once and done thing. It happens when you hear the word and believe on him. That's Jesus Christ. Um, and you can see that condemnation is not something you're going to, you're not, you're not going to come into condemnation. You're passed from death to life. And then he, he goes on, I think, to um, give a contrast here. When the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son, this is speaking of the resurrection. And there will be a resurrection because Christ purchased the resurrection. He, it's possible through the resurrection of Christ. He is the resurrection. He is the life. Now, when it's come to the judgment that's been given to him through the Son of Man, I think personally that this is a reference to those who will be judged by their works without a relationship with Christ. That would be the great white throne judgment. And if their name isn't written in the book of life, that's probably what it is. Um, I could be wrong. I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking at this. I didn't really expect to come into this passage tonight, but... but um, but I think that's what it is. I think there's a distinction in verse 24 for the believer who has eternal life and will be judged for their works that will either grant or uh, not grant a reward, as illustrated in 1 Corinthians 3. And this would, this, would, uh, this would be the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 for the unbeliever. Appreciate that, Josh. Appreciate that uh, exegesis of that passage. Uh, Francis, over to you for your response. I, I, I'm guessing that the focus of the question was on the part of John 5.29 that says, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And in the Reformed understanding of the resurrection, there are those who are in Christ, who will be raised to life, and everyone else will be raised to the second death, the lake of fire, outer darkness, what we commonly call hell. That's the, uh, that's the understanding that we have. I don't know for sure exactly what the questioner had in mind as an interpretation of John 5.29, but my answer to that is that those who have done good is a reference to those who have Christ's righteousness on their behalf. 
not on those who have personal righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees or something like that. In fact, uh, there's, there's nobody who's good enough on their own merits to deserve the resurrection of life. Um, so I, I guess I respectfully would, uh, I would respectfully refocus that question on that aspect. Like, uh, who are these people who receive the resurrection of life? Who are the ones that are said to have done good and therefore receive this resurrection of life? And is there a different interpretation? Is this not talking about heaven, or is this, you know, is this talking about something else? This reward. Thank you for the response there, Francis and uh, Josh. Final word. It was your question. Yeah. Um... I appreciate that, Francis, to draw the emphasis back to the doing good uh, versus not. Um, I, I do think that there's there's two resurrections, um, one, one resurrection to life, the other to condemnation. You see that in the New Testament. Uh, you see see it in Daniel 12. It's a resurrection to of the just and the unjust. Um, so so when we, we talk about um, doing good, John, John, like, is the king of placing emphasis on belief for eternal life. He actually did it four, five verses earlier in verse verse twenty four. Um, so I think those who do good are, are are the ones who are resurrected to life. You do good uh, by doing the work of the Father, which is that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Father that uh, that when. The Pharisees asked, like, they asked Jesus, what are the works? Uh, maybe, Francis, maybe you can help me out with this quotation. They said, um, what, um, what what are the works that we can do for, for life? And Jesus answered him and said, this is the work um, of the Father that you believe. I'm, uh, I'm butchering that quotation, but... But anyways, I think that's what, what the resurrection of life is, is belief. But maybe you could help me out with that if, if you wanted to. <laughs> uh, John 6, 29 is what you're thinking of. Uh, John, that's, uh, they said, then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered yeah. and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. They said, therefore, unto him, what sign shows you that we may see and believe you? What, what do you work? And then they asked for food. <laughs> that was their, <laughs> that's what they were going towards. But, yeah. Well, gentlemen, that's the uh, perfect place to end it. Uh, we made our way through the, the Q&A. And uh, I want to thank you both for, uh, you know, your time here. Very generous. We're over three hours on this, on this epic debate. It is a, a very heavy uh, topic. And uh, you did a great job. So, Josh, Francis, thank you so much for this. Uh, why don't we have some just quick final thoughts, final words before I let you gentlemen get out of here. And then I'm just going to stick around for uh, two or three minutes uh, for some announcements. So why don't we start with uh, Josh, uh, final thoughts, final words, and thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, thank you again, Donnie, for the invitation. Thank you, Francis. Church and fan this is the first time that we have um, talked in person. It's been good. Uh, I, I really appreciate the conversation. It's it's I it, I really wouldn't have expected less based off of some of the interactions I've seen in previous debates that you've had. It's been very cordial. It's been informative. We've we've covered a lot of material on it, and and I'd say a short amount of time, but it's been over three hours. For those of you who um, may look at what I'm saying and say like you know 
Josh is overemphasizing the Calvinist position uh, and, and placing it, making it sound too harsh. Um, what, what I'd say to you is, Francis, and anybody else who is a Calvinist, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that you're not born again. What I'm saying is the message of Calvinism as it relates to perseverance of the saints is backloading the gospel with works, which is not the gospel. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. It's not a necessary condition for eternal life. It's not a verification for the faith that saves. And, and I think we need to really evaluate that. What I am saying, though, is anybody who preaches this and teaches it was probably taught it after they had already received and believed the true gospel, that it's in Jesus Christ alone. Um, so I don't have it. I don't have any fault for anybody who's who I'm, I'm not condemning anybody. What I'm saying is this is a false gospel. Stop teaching it. Stop believing it. Turn to Jesus and that's it. But if you have done that and you're and you're, and you're teaching this, it doesn't mean that you're not going to go to heaven because I believe once you've been saved, you're always saved. You just are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ and lose a lot. So anyways, I love you guys. I appreciate the time. And uh, hopefully that's not too much for anybody. My privilege in in hosting uh, you gentlemen. So thanks for that. Uh, those final words, final thoughts. Josh, uh, Francis, uh, thank you as well for doing this. And uh, some final thoughts, final words. I, I reiterate uh, what Josh just said about thanking you, Donnie, for putting this together and for uh, accommodating it in your schedule. I know you're, you're busy and and I do appreciate your time in this. And uh, I do appreciate the... Oh, I think Francis might think have uh, frozen up or or we lost him um, in, in the final words anyways. We're going over three hours. So um, not sure if he's going to make his way back in here. But uh, I do want to thank anybody in the chat uh, really quickly who uh, gave super stickers. Doki Doki Bible Club, super sticker uh, master. Appreciate that. And as I'm saying that, Francis, I see you're back, uh, back. brother. If you wanted to <laughs> go out, you just froze there for a little bit. So uh, go ahead. Uh, sorry for the interruption. No, I wanted to say thank no you to, to you, Donnie. I know you have a busy schedule and I appreciate you taking time for this. Thanks as well to Josh. Uh, it is our first uh, debate together. And I, I appreciate that you do take it seriously. The gospel is a thing of uh, central importance. And, you know, when someone sincerely believes that Calvinism is teaching another gospel, we need, you need to take this, that, that, Accusation seriously, we need to address it. Uh, this wasn't necessarily the debate for all of that because there's there's a lot more to Calvinism than perseverance of the saints, and uh, and in some interesting sense, there's an agreement on that point between free grace and Calvinism in the sense that we say that anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, and therefore, in that sense, that they will come to go to heaven. There's some some agreement on that point, and yet. Uh, I understand that there's uh, a belief that Calvinism is teaching that you are saved by your works, which you know, I totally reject that accusation. Uh, I don't know if this debate has clarified that or not, but you know, if it hasn't, I do invite people to you know read what what Calvinists have to say about the subject, so they can un understand the difference between some works being a part of salvation and works being the ground of our salvation. Those are very two very different things. And the final interesting coincidence I noticed is that our shirts 
are kind of opposite. He has KC, I have CK <laughs> here on our, our shirts. So uh, just this was purely planned, a wasn't it? <laughs> That's right. We're a mirror image of each other. <laughs> this is not the Calvin we're talking about for Calvinism. Just <laughs> anyway. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Francis, Josh, again, thank you, gentlemen, for giving us over three hours of your time. And to the audience, I encourage you, share around this content. Critical thinking is important. And, and the truth, of course, is is so important. So, Josh, Francis, I am going to let you gentlemen, uh, you know, get out of here and have the night off. You've earned it. So thank you so much. And, um, yeah, I'm going to be sticking around a little bit for some announcements. So God bless the both of you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. We'll catch you later. Bye. God bless you, too. All right, I'm back, just you and me, guys, and another uh, epic debate in the books. Looks like um, the Layman Seminary, Charles uh, Jennings himself, is having an after show. So, uh, Charles, if you are in the, um, in the chat right now or any of the mods, if you have the link to uh, his after show, uh, please post it so anybody who wants to join can join. I believe uh, Charles will be handing out uh, StreamYard join links when the when the show starts. So, and then people can go in and, and check that out. So, thank you everybody for the super stickers, the super chats. Uh, Doki Doki, God bless you, and and good to see you, brother. Appreciate all the super stickers, and uh, for fun. Uh, Ian Chen official gave a few super, uh, super chats some donations. So I appreciate it. He says he loves Dr. Dan. <laughs> he rocks. Sorry. Just wanted to say it. No worries. Good debate. Good debate. Um, and uh, he says, so Ian, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for the support. And uh, it's good that you're uh, sitting here and uh, enjoying some of these uh, more theological and soteriological um, topics. So again, thank you for that. Uh, people in my audience who uh, follow the creation versus evolution controversy, though, they may uh, know Dr. Dan more better as uh, Dodgeball Dan. So uh, Dodgeball Dan, uh, if you're out there, uh, I just want to say you are doing a really fantastic job in terms of uh, being a, a runner-up you know, very close to the 2022 uh, Golden Dodgeball Award. So I do want to thank uh, everybody as well for being here because uh, we had so many awesome questions. And uh, this debate, the debate surrounding the, the soteriology topic is so important. And I want to remind people if they did not see this one uh, from a few days ago, Bob Wilkin, Robertson, Janus, uh, debate on salvation by faith alone or faith plus works. This one was, uh, this was a heroic debate. You know, I was looking forward to this one for a while and uh, it did not disappoint. And neither did this de uh, debate disappoint either. Francis and Josh did a fantastic job. And I do appreciate the work that they both uh, clearly and obviously put into these important debates. Okay, so a few uh, theology debates coming up. Uh, is oneness biblical? So we got Matt Slick. He's going to be back here again. I believe this is going to be Matt's eighth time uh, here debating on this channel. So it's al always a blessing to have Matt Slick. And also first timer on this channel, uh, John Barton. Uh, 
So is oneness biblical? And that is going to be a July, uh, first week of July, I believe it is. And uh, right around that time, we're going to have Kelly Powers back here. He's going to be debating uh, Taylor Stewart on the same topic. Um, actually, no, a, a similar topic, Unitarianism versus Trinitarianism. So make sure you're here for that. We've also got a Bible uh, version, Bible uh, translation debate. CJ Cox and Nick Sayers, both seasoned debaters, and uh, both know this topic incredibly well. So this is going to be awesome as well. Is the KJV the only legitimate English version? This is coming up uh, this month. And I've been getting a ton of requests through the uh, through the website on a variety of topics. So I do appreciate uh, you know, the, um, the brothers out there that are, uh, always up for, for these kinds of debates and entering the octagon, you know, we do have, uh, requests for, um, more debates on, on the Bible version topic. We had requests come in for, uh, debates on the dinosaurs and man topic, which we just said a couple there as well. Uh, so I do appreciate people stepping up. So I've got a few, uh, individuals, well-studied individuals on the uh, Bible translation uh, topic, and, um, they would be the uh, KJV only proponents. So anybody interested in getting in on a debate like that, the Bible translation debate, please let me know. And uh, shoot me an email and we can do our best to set those up. We have so many debates uh, for the summer, guys, that uh, we are going to be doing double header nights. So, so far, I think we have uh, two double header nights uh, set. And then for July and August, we'll... Um, We'll fit in uh, some more of those. So uh, Honesty Angel has posted the after show link in the chat. So please, guys, uh, check that out. Anyways, the last thing I want to remind everybody about is uh, next week now, we've got two uh, two debates that a lot of people have been waiting for. Uh, one on the age of the earth, that's Professor David McQueen and Snake Was Right. And then one on the uh, 2022 Evolution Debate Challenge Series, uh, Planner Walk and Dr. Dino. So uh, that being said, um, that's all that comes to mind. And I wasn't even the one debating and I'm pretty tired here. So <laughs> three and a half hours, I'm gonna shut it down here. Please, if you're not uh, yet subscribed, hit that subscribe button, share around this content. The truth and critical thinking are so incredibly important. So God bless everybody. Thank you for the, um, the support, the questions. And uh, for those who are heading over to the after show, uh, we will see you there.